Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey, kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, but we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. It's comics. And here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome back to another one of our The Longest Reunion Tours Ever episodes. Or The Longest Farewell Tour. That's the one. The Longest Farewell Tour. It's where the money is. Mm-hmm. You know, you could not have had a hit for 30 years, but still do reunion tours that make money. No. The Rolling Stones. Right. They continue to do reunion and farewell tours. So they did... Okay, alright. Okay. I think Mick Jagger's been saying farewell since 1978, hasn't he? Because he just won't die. <laughs> <laughs> That's not very nice. He's getting on a bit now. Yeah, isn't but it? we don't want him to die. I never said I wanted him to die, I just said he won't. He's just flatly refusing to die. Yeah. And so's Keith Richards. Yeah. Now, Keith Richards should, by all accounts, be already dead. <laughs> you know, when you've inhaled as many drugs as that man has. Keith Richards looks looks weird though have you seen his calendars I have not god no it looks like they're not like firemen's are they so he's got his creepy smile with his fake teeth <laughs> yeah and it looks like they just photoshopped his head on <laughs> kind of like I, I don't because it's quite muscly but you can tell it's an old man so it's it's <laughs> why are you looking at Keith Richards calendars just for a laugh isn't it? <laughs> okay alright they, they kind of look like Keith Richard calendars have no place outside of churches that only old women go to. Like Cliff Richard calendars. Yeah. They, they occupy a specific niche yeah, yeah. in old woman fandom. And church bazaars and stuff yeah. like that. Coffee times, coffee tea houses. Like, I, they can't appeal to anyone else. They can't. <laughs> no, that's true. They certainly don't appeal to me, which which made me wonder why uh, why you're looking at it. But uh, should we should we consult the email Zach? Okay. The email Zach. Zach. See what I did there? Because all our emails tonight are about the Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice episode that we did on the heels of Batman versus Superman Dawn of Justice. Yes. Which came out uh, a few weeks ago at this point, and everyone's already forgot it. <laughs> uh, the first one. No, the internet won't let us forget it. Oh, no. First one's from Nathaniel Wade. Hello, Nathaniel. B versus S Dodge is the title. I like that. Mm-hmm. So I just heard you guys and your reaction to B versus S Dodge, pronounced Bevis Dodge. And you certainly have my sympathies. I've done my own 20-minute rant on the thing, cut down to nine minutes and available for viewing on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel. See it now before all the views are gone! So I'll try to spur you most of that and just address some of the specific points that you brought up. 20 minutes is quite impressive. 20 minutes edited down to nine is quite impressive. The nine minutes is very impressive, but mm. the fact that the original was 20... Concise. Mm. A lot of cutting. Yeah. Just Good like video as well. Needed. Yeah. Oh, very good. Hey. Sorry I watched all of that punchline, but it was funny. Uh, yeah, it's very good, I've watched it. So you should go and check that out. And I liked his quality plugage. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, we do approve of good pluggage. Of, of good pluggage, but also plugging your own stuff within your email to us. Mm-hmm. We're big fans of that because it means I don't have to remember to plug whatever it is you do. It's, it's, you forget when you record, but then it comes back in editing. Inevitably. What's that show that he does? Because you've got that many on your iPod. So if you do it yourself, like Nathaniel just did, yeah. it saves me a lot of hassle and time. So I do appreciate it. And, and you know, I'm a big fan of plugging yourself. Mm-hmm. Not with a butt plug. Not, not that kind of plug-in. I, I, my mind wouldn't have gone though. But, <laughs> but now that I've mentioned it, you can't see anything there's else. There's an image in my head that I wish wasn't there. Sorry about that. I do apologise. Anyway, should we carry on with the email? <laughs> I found your final assertion that you're sick of Frank Miller's Batman to be an interesting one, as it's an angle I hadn't considered. For my part, I'm not sure I'm sick of Miller's Batman, which might have something to do with not being as enabled of Snyder's Batman as you two are. However, I absolutely have no interest in seeing heroes that aren't Batman being painted with the Frank Miller brush. This film somehow had an even lower opinion of Superman than The Dark Knight Returns did, and I dread all of the JLA will be painted in the same way. That said, I don't think this film has done any favours by the fact that a far superior animated version of The Dark Knight Returns came out but a few years ago, which I recommend checking out if you haven't already. I know that to mainstream audiences that doesn't matter because they don't pay attention to the DC animated direct-to-video films, but it was yet another knock against the film for me. Yeah, I've got the two Dark Knight Returns volumes on uh, Blu-ray. Angela bought them me for birthday and or Christmas or Valentine's Day and or Christmas or anniversary. She bought both of them for me. Anyway, they have since been re-edited into into one film. Yeah. Whereas originally they were released as two 90-minute movies. I actually think I prefer it as two 90-minute movies. Maybe a bit but-num-a-thon. You don't want your uh, animated films to be three hours long. No. I mean, we've we've just had a nearly three-hour version of The Dark Knight Returns. It didn't go well. No. Let's be brutally honest. So, yeah, they are recommended. They are good. I've not seen the new one, Bad Blood, yet. Have you seen that one? Have you seen any of them? I've not. You know, you've watched Batman Year One, have you? Because that's quite good as well. Anyway, I was surprised to hear as many positive things said about Lois because I thought she was one of the weakest parts of the film. However, I came to realise that what you liked and what I disliked weren't the same things. You liked the characterisation, strong, smart, determined, caring, etc., while I hated the character use. Simply put, her subplot is one of several that runs in circles and doesn't actually move the narrative forward. I suspect the only reason that her entire tracking down the bullet subplot wasn't completely excised was because then she basically wouldn't have been in the movie except to be rescued at the end. Props for giving her something to do, but bollocks to not giving her something narratively relevant to do. Hang on, as an American, am I allowed to say bollocks? Well, I'll just imagine this being read in your accent, and it will be fine. I think you're allowed to say bollocks. I think it's fun when Americans say bollocks, because the majority of people don't know that it's swearing. It's like when they say wanker. Yeah. We actively encourage the use of our swear words. David Tennant's swearing on Alias was quite interesting. Jessica Jones was quite interesting. Not because he's, he's American, but because it's a British-Scottish man swearing on an American TV show. Yeah, and he, he was probably like, you do know what this means, right? Yeah, that's probably why it's in there. Mm. So, yeah, maybe he changed something. Maybe he said, now, there's a, there's a proper swear word I can use here. Do you want me to use it? Yeah. And got away with it. Although they didn't seem to bother about the swearing in Daredevil too much. That's true. So, it's not like... Second were... season, though. That's true, yeah. So, maybe they just weren't worried about getting away with anything mm. at that point. All right, okay. One use of the term intergang could have made Lois's Lane's story more interesting. Yeah, if she'd have been investigating intergang and would have found out they were linked, but that would have implied that the screenwriters were paying any attention to what they were doing. That's true. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe Devil's Advocate, it's entirely possible that the extended court will have more in that initial 90 minutes to make the plot make more sense. We've kind of become a bit desperate to see this 
I'm, like I'm, not, I'm not desperate to see it. I'll be brutally honest with you. I have no real desire to ever see it again. Mm. But there is a feeling that the 90, 90 minutes, the 40 minutes that are added to it may make it make more sense. It will. Be- it might benefit from being over three hours long. Yeah, it may benefit from having a story that, that links together cohesively. Mm. And maybe that, if, if most of the cutscenes are in the first half of the film, right. and they cut all of that out to just leave room for the splody action, then it may be that the plot will make more sense when you get to see more of it. I think it would be better if there were more scenes in the second half. Because we've agreed that the first hour is a solid, the best entertaining film. Part of the film, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't really need to see more splody CGI action with Doomsday. That's true. Unless it's an alternate ending where Superman isn't thick as pig shit <laughs> and gives the spear to Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman rams it into Doomsday. Yeah. Thus serving Superman and Batman and the world and making her even cooler than she actually was already in that film. But then you won't have Super Jesus. That's true. The Redeemer. So. And also you don't get Zack Snyder killing Superman. You don't get Zack Snyder going, oh, what a great big cake for me to eat. <laughs> you don't get Zack Snyder killing a character that he clearly hates anyway. Sure. Okay. Uh, like you guys, I'm still waiting to hear a true defence of the film. I see plenty of people who claim they're defending it, but in truth they're just attacking people who don't like it. Critics are biased in the pockets of Disney, Marvel is for kiddies, etc. Oh, you know what's really pissed me off about that? What? That's one thing Nathaniel and I really agree on. Those pissy memes. My two favourites, right? There have been two favourite memes that I've seen for Batman vs Super. Right. That actually made me laugh uproariously. One was one that implied that by not liking it, and I, let's be brutally honest, I didn't not like it. Let's establish that from you the get-go. Like I was just didn't like it. Yeah, it, I didn't think it was bad enough to hate. Well, one thing I've heard is that it wasn't bad enough for it to be bad. Like the room is a bad film, but people enjoy it because mm. it's bad. This isn't. Yeah, this this isn't bad enough to enjoy as a bad movie. Yeah, but it isn't good enough to truly get behind. Is it? No. Is the problem. But anyway, these two memes. So the first one basically came out and said that if you don't like this this movie, it's because you've been brainwashed by the popcorn pap that Marvel spew out and that you aren't smart enough to thoroughly understand its narrative complexities. And hey, oh, you just, we brought that up on yeah, that show, yeah. One, that made me laugh uproariously because A, it implies that there are narrative complexities to Batman, Superman, which I, I didn't really think that there were. And B, what's wrong with entertaining movies? Well, not what's wrong with entertaining movies is we brought this up on the actual show. Mm. There are several Marvel, Marvel films movies that yeah. are provoking. Yeah, that do have food for the mind. Yeah. yeah. But my second one is they took that scene, you know, from Jurassic Park... Where Nedry says something, nobody he does the nobody curse here bit, yeah. and then and they change the the meme thing underneath. So you don't the, like Batman. You don't, that's Superman the one. Movie, Have you yeah, seen it? Yeah. You don't like Batman v Superman. See, nobody, nobody cares. cares. So the flip side of that is you like Batman Superman. See, nobody cares. Hmm. So that's that's the problem with both of them. I you think can just turn it around it's on itself. Something that in time people will realise once the um, the complexities of the film has been revealed to set in yeah. I don't think it'll be as hot shit as it mm. is now I mean see it's one of the I was talking about Ben Rush all, all on Facebook all day today pretty much hi Ben I know the notifications yeah 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 <laughs> and basically it does boil down to the fact that if you're a huge Batman fan 
there is a lot to like in this film. And we are huge Batman if fans. you're a huge Superman fan. If this again goes to my point, as of we record this, I haven't listened to a defence of it, and I, I've got it queued up on my iPad. I've got Trentus Magnus uh, Punches Reality on my iPad, I've not listened to it yet. But the, the defence of it so far has been like Nathaniel says. It's, you don't like it, you're wrong. Mm. Or you just like the Marvel movies, so you don't know anything, and that's not a constructive criticism. It's an argument. It was and it's, des- yeah. it's a desperate argument. Yeah. Like that. Now, if you, if you, I want to read. There's been. See, this is the other thing as well. There's been loads of really good articles about why it's bad. Mm. I want to read a really good one on why it's not bad. Yeah. And there was one that I, I saw that I almost thought was going to be it, and then it turned out that essentially it was it was arguing for something else, really, not that the film was actually any good. I want to see a defence of it. I really do. Well, I, the, the, my favourite thing said about it is what Ben Affleck said, that critics are going to be critical about it, mm-hmm. but it's a film for the fans, and we want the fans to enjoy it. Because that's fair play if you don't like it, if you do, but if you're a Wh- fan... Which of the Marvel movies haven't been for the fans? But my argument is the people who say, like, oh, the critics don't know what to talk about, the critics being bought out in that book... Isn't it a critic's job to be critical? Yeah. A critic isn't going to write a good review about a film unless it's perfect. Yeah. Well, see, the, the, the only one I really pay any attention to is, is Mark Kermode. Yeah. On, on Kermode and Mayo's movie podcast. And his review I listened to was pretty much in line with me in the sense that it wasn't bad... But it's not good, and it's narratively all over the place. And you've kind of... If it wasn't Batman versus Superman, and as a comic book fan you've got an inherent interest in those characters, you'd have forgotten about it minutes after leaving the cinema. And the most damning criticism I've heard about it is, well, the Transformers movies make money. Mm. But that... None of... Nobody would argue... Transformers fans don't argue that the Transformers movies are good. There may be some enjoyment level uh, in seeing your favourite Transformers characters in live action, yeah. although I would argue they're in live action because they're all CG, but whatever, we'll, we'll let that go. Yeah. But nobody, Jason Trenner's the biggest Transformers fan I know, and so is Luke Giaconetta. Neither one of them have ever argued with me that the Transformers movies are good. Yeah. So, you know, not all of the critics have been bought off, surely. Yeah, but I'd find it funny for people to criticise critics for criticising a film, <laughs> as though that's not the job. <laughs> so that's not what they're paid to do. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway, we'll, um, we'll carry it on with this email. What was most infuriating for me about the film was how purely executed its ideas were, but in many cases those ideas had potential if not genuine merit. Personally, the point at which the film lost me was when Superman was in the mountains and saw Robin Hood. I mean, Elliot Ness. I mean, some idiot who stood in a tornado. It wasn't the scene in and of itself, but rather it was the sixth or seventh occasion that the movie jumped into a scene with no set upon natural flow from what came before and left me on my own flailingly trying to figure out what was going on and why it was being shown. This is just inept storytelling, regardless of how good the story being told might be in and of itself. I said this to you that we didn't mention on the show. Was that scene a dream? No, I got that it was just him seeing what he wanted to see. So it was a hallucination? Yeah. Because the film had, was it three or four different scenes that were revealed to be dream sequences that either were what, what foreshadowing the future yeah. or didn't really seem to have a place in this film? And that was one of them. Well, 
the Flash one I could get behind because until, that's setting up Justice League until it revealed to be a dream. Right. If it, if Flash came back in time to warn Bruce Wayne, get behind that. Yeah. But for Bruce to dream about the Flash coming back in time, yeah, seemed a bit silly to me. But the the Jonathan Kent one would would have been fine. Mm-mm. Hallucination, dream, whatever. It would have been fine if they'd have spent more time with Superman in exile. Yeah. Because they didn't. He's he's in he's in the Arctic. He, he leaves that, Lois on the balcony. And then he comes back. We next see him doing his David Banner routine in the Arctic. Yeah. And he sees Jonathan Kent in a scene that is... As far as I remember, so apologies if this is explained in the film. I've only watched it the once. But it seems to me he either has a hallucination or a dream of Jonathan Kent. Yeah. And then just goes back to Metropolis based on the dream he has from Jonathan Kent. Yeah. Is that right? Well, it's it's there for Lois Lane, who is only there to be rescued. She certainly is in the back half of the film. Which, because yeah. that, that got pointed out in a review I saw today, right? So Superman travels halfway around the world mm. to rescue Lois Lane from the mm. terrorists. Yep. He travels, he, you know, he rescues Lois Lane from falling off the building. Yeah. But he, he just stands by and lets his mother get kidnapped. Yeah. Because that doesn't work. No, well, th- th- he stands in the middle of the Senate congressional hearing. Yeah. As if even even if he only sees the explosion begin, he's Superman. Yeah, he's, he did stand there looking useless. Yeah, at, at the speed that he can move, at the very least, if he'd have moved as that explosion begins and contained as much of it as he could around that guy who blew himself up. Yeah. Right? He would have at least saved the back half of the room full of people, at the very least. Hmm. And maybe even the actual Senate committee of Holly Hunter and co. But he didn't. He just stood there and let it blow up around him. Yeah. To emphasise the point that Superman is useless... Which might have worked if we hadn't have had two separate scenes where he saves Lois Lane in a split second. Yeah. So, I don't know. Again, I can't... I'm not even angry about it. It's just... It's bad. It's inept filmmaking. Yeah. You know, I don't... I don't even really need my stories in my films to make complete and utter sense. Just to be fair. I mean, wasn't the bits in Ant-Man that were utter bobbins? Yeah. And there's bits in Age of Ultron where you're, like, scratching your head a bit. Hmm. But the overall experience of the film kind of narratively holds up and entertained me. Yeah. And the more you ponder on Batman versus Superman, the more you're thinking, so why did he do that then? I, I guess that's just because you're an idiot and you don't understand I don't understand it's narrative <laughs> That's clearly it. That's, yeah. a, that's a joke. You said that with a straight face, though. So. <laughs> well, fair play to you. All right, okay, fair enough, whatever. Uh, Nathaniel concludes between this and Daredevil duking it out with the Punisher I just hope I get over the general I don't want to see superheroes punch each other anymore fatigue I'm feeling before Civil War comes out happy days Nathaniel Wade well I think Civil War is going to be full of superheroes punching each other that's one of my favourite ones as well or it's, it's a shot of Batman and Superman and Doomsday and Wonder Woman fighting each other and then it's a shot of Civil War where they're all in the airport and it looks really empty but yeah because destruction of fire makes a film. See, the, the only thing I was thinking, what if Civil War does end with the death of Captain America? Uh, as the comics did. Right, okay. And is this a situation where there is a rumour around Hollywood? I don't know if this is true or not. Mm. It's pure... It's pure gossip. 
basically. But there is a rumour around Hollywood that the only reason Quicksilver was in Days of Future Past right. was that the Fox people got a hold of an early draft of Age of Ultron that had Quicksilver in it right. and thought, we own this character as well, we can beat them to the punch because we come out earlier. And Brian Singer did it purely to piss off Joss Whedon Right. Because Joss Whedon has done nothing but piss all over Brian Singer altering his rewrite of X-Men. Right, okay. In which case, if that's true, Brian Singer is more of a little child than I even <laughs> ever gave him credit for. And I've always thought he was a pissy little child. Right. So, is the same situation happened with Batman vs Superman? Have they got wind of the fact that Civil or even read the Civil War comic yeah. where Captain America dies well, and thought, let's kill Superman that first? That could work, because in Civil War, Captain America didn't die in Civil War. No, he died in the Ram. He ultimately was supposed to die in Civil War, yeah. wasn't he? And then they moved it to his own comic. Because Ed Brubaker for... argued, no, this needs to be in Cap. It would work, because Civil War is a Captain America film. Yeah. That's, so that's I, I just had that thought today while I was at the gym and if they're going to follow the Civil War comics story not mm. comics generally then as much as they can obviously it has to be a different story within the cinematic universe than for in the comics but Captain America dies at the end of that story yeah and Superman's died at the end of Batman vs Superman and you're like so okay mm. I mean you can argue well the death of Superman came out in 1994 dude <laughs> so you can go yeah okay but within the the Batman vs Superman movie that felt really tacked on yeah whereas it's uh, an organic part of the Civil War storyline especially if Civil War ends with Captain America being revealed not to be dead mm. if yeah. I was Marvel I'd be like wait a minute yeah <laughs> but like there's not a lot you can do about it is there so we'll just see how it goes I mean if Civil War ends up just being a better film despite having the um, same story beats I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath to find out whether Civil War is a better <laughs> film I think it will be. No, I think I, I know it will. All right, you think you know the answer to that yeah. question? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Chris Franklin emailed in Batman vs Superman: Dawn of Meh. <laughs> Hello, Islands. Great BVS review episode. I really don't have much to add, as I agreed with pretty much everything you said. And my feelings about the film fall somewhere right in between you two. Slightly more agitated than Andy, but not quite as riled up as Michael. It's not a great <laughs> film. I don't think it's even a good film. I do think Man of Steel is a superior product. This one not only reeks of flawed direction for the characters, but of too many cooks being in the kitchen demanding they catch up to the Marvel films, which they probably never will and shouldn't even attempt at this point. But isn't that the error of DC Comics these days? So hell-bent on being Marvel, they trip over themselves constantly. You could argue they've been doing that in some fashion since 1985. Looking forward to you guys talking about some comics you enjoy next time, but you gave this one a proper kick in the pants, and it deserved it. See, I was trying not to do that. I was trying not to kick it when it was down. Yeah. And I, I did really want to emphasise some of the positive stuff, which was Affleck was good as Batman. Yeah. Bruce Wayne, and there were elements to the Batman bits that I really liked. And like I said, the Daily Planet stuff, I was a big fan of. Mm. But the Superman stuff just so missed the mark. I just kind of wanted to get all the good things. Like I wanted to rescue the good things before <laughs> I, I, I attacked Rescue the good things yeah. and put them in a better film. Alright, <laughs> <laughs> uh, last email for tonight is from Matt Evans. Dawn of Just Piss, more like. What is it about this film that has just caused a, a deluge of... <laughs> Iffy email headings. <laughs> Hi, Michael Andy. 
I'd like to say I enjoyed your Batman vs Superman episode but in truth your dispirited responses to the film were contagious as if that wasn't dispirited enough I went into my midnight screening full of renewed Man of Steel love and optimism that Snyder would pull this off how could he not it's Batman vs Superman right what could go wrong Ugh. such a colossal disappointment First I was like Andy, just deflated. It's just how it starts. The sleeplessness, the plot hole dwelling that turns good geeks mildly peeved. Without wanting to go over well-trodden ground here, there's been a lot of criticism of Batman and Superman acting out of character. But you know what? I'm not averse to that. I'm a child of Elseworlds, What If and X-Men movies, so I'm not averse to alternate takes that diverge from the source material. Present me with a Superman that crushes skulls for fun, or a Batman dressed as a giant pink otter, and I'll go along with your vision, as long as the story and writing is strong enough to justify it. Batman vs Superman is very much not in that category. I don't even get around to giving a crap about Killy Batman or mopey unheroic Superman, because the story is just so appallingly constructed on its own terms. They had a simple, elegant grounds for compelling conflict already set up. Superman was implicated in mass destruction, Batman's not happy, let's go! But no, they start by focusing on that destruction, then derail, disregard it entirely, move on 18 months and then bugger about for an eternity in a meandering plot with Superman being framed and a Lois investigating a high-tech bullet and Mark Kent being kidnapped, none of which is interesting, relevant, necessary or even makes any sense. And that's before we get to the laughable Save Martha moment, the utter stupidity of the nuke scene, the pointless shoehorning in of Doomsday, the cynical emptiness of Superman's death, the complete lack of any kind of meaningful follow-up on the Man of Steel. But plenty of others have done that on my behalf. Great row, I hate this film. Absolutely hate it. It's one of the sloppiest, laziest, most unengaging and poorly constructed films I have ever seen. And I take no joy in that. My passion's aroused because I care about this stuff, and I wanted it to be good. I hoped it would be great. I'm a massive New Gods fan, and I should take some comfort in the fact they're being introduced, but it just depresses me that they've been dragged into Zack Snyder's show, and it depresses me further that I will inevitably pay to see future instalments because of my lifelong crippling addiction to this stuff. We'll interrupt, though. Are you interested in paying to see any more instalments of the DC Cinematic Universe? If they did a New Gods film, I probably would see it, and I hate myself for that. See, Anya really wants to see Suicide Squad, because of Harley Quinn. I have no interest in Suicide Squad. Right. I'll see Wonder Woman, because I, I was a big fan of Wonder Woman. Yeah, I, I think of the upcoming slate of movies, the Wonder Woman one's the only one I'm even remotely interested in at this point. Yeah. I don't want any more of mopey, whiny Superman, which is what we're going to get in Justice League, because Zack Snyder's involved with that. Yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd remain to be convinced by Jason Momoa as Aquaman. I'd, I would happily be proven wrong if enough people say, no, no, it's a great film, then I'll probably go and watch it, but I'm not in a rush to buy advance we'll, tickets. We'll wait for the DVD. Oh, yeah, or, or we'll go to the cheap seats one again, yeah. like we did with Batman v Superman. Um, I have no interest in watching a Flash when I can watch it every week on TV and know that that one's better. <laughs> and I do wonder how many people are going to think like me mm. on that score. That's going to be the interesting Even one for me. Your casual non-comic readers yeah. who just watch the show. Uh, they learn at work. Yeah. When I was talking to her about the upcoming What's It movies and said The Flash is going to be one, and she said, oh, the guy from TV, I said, no, there's different actors playing it. And she said, why? Yeah. See, that's what you're up against. I know they're doing the whole multiverse thing, which is fascinating in and of itself, but by doing the whole multiverse thing, you have no reason Grant Custin can't be in these movies. He's just been in Supergirl. 
with a, a multiverse thing. Yeah. Yeah. So you know. Uh, continuing with Matt's email, if I may illustrate my feelings towards Mr. Snyder with a comics reference, because such is the gift and curse of our people, there is an arc of the criminally underrated series Justice League Task Force, in which the team is embroiled in a complicated and dangerous situation at Vandal Savage's headquarters. The Ray and Triumph spend the entire arc arguing about whether Savage is a master planner or a tuna sandwich. You know, thick. Just when it seems like Savage has been pulling all the strings and holds all the cards, he kills a man for no good reason, thereby dooming himself and everyone around him, and proving that all this time he's been a clueless idiot making it up as he goes along. Based on my growing appreciation for Man of Steel and all the potential it neatly sets up to move both Superman and the DC Cinematic Universe forward, I'd been arguing the case that Snyder was, well, not quite a master planner, but at least a man with a plan. He's sowing seeds, it'll all pan out with Batman v Superman. Just wait and see! But no. It turns out Zack Snyder is a tuna sandwich. And I f hate tuna sandwiches. That was a lot more ranting than I expected. Apologies. I look forward to your next special edition. Here's hoping it's a more joyful experience. Cheers, Matt. I like Wonder Woman, so it's not all bad. That <laughs> was his PS. <laughs> everyone seems to have liked Wonder Woman. Yes. That does seem to have been a common refrain, that everybody's like Wonder Woman. She laughed and smiled, so... And she was fun. Yeah. In a movie completely devoid of, of any other fun. Yeah. Except maybe Alfred had a couple of funny lines, didn't he? Mm. One or two of Alfred's lines were, were grim-worthy. And, and Bruce actually spoke to Alfred. Yes, that's true. So that, that is a plus. Yeah. I mean, I, I wanted... You know what I wanted? When he calls in Bruce, mm. and you like you said, we've got no context for the fact that he, he's able to do do so to call in Bruce, because surely Bruce would be clever enough to line his cowl with... with Lead. Lead, yeah. That would have been. But you know what would have been cool? What? If Bruce had kind of gone at that point, Batman had gone, how did you know? How did you know? Yeah. And Superman had said, you were the same master shape Bruce Wayne does. Ching! Like, you know, Superman has more powers at his disposal than just X-ray vision. Super smell. Yeah. <laughs> Your distinctive body odour gave you away. <laughs> You're really sweating in that suit, Bruce. <laughs> Get yourself a new one. Anyway, yeah, we'll uh, we'll be back after this commercial break for another show that is brilliant. I'm sure of it. <laughs> he says as if he knows what trailer he's going to put in, and uh, we'll be back with Captain America White. Stay tuned. Thirty years ago, I walked into a comic store and I picked up GI Joe and the Transformers number one. A month later, I came back. They say every journey has a first step. Every story has a beginning. This is mine. I may have begun my comics collecting career in earnest in 1990, but from the fall of 1986 until the fall of 1987, I was a regular at my LCS. So in honor of 30 years of collecting comics, I'll be recapping and reviewing all of them on the days they originally came out. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Origin Story, a podcast miniseries starting this September at popcultureaffidavit.com and twotruefreaks.com.
Captain America White was a project that looked like it would never happen. When it was announced that Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale would be adding the volume to their increasingly misnamed Colors Trilogy, there was much rejoicing. Whilst Hulk Grey was easily the weakest of the three volumes, it was still an Aston Martin in a sea of Skodas. This volume would focus on Captain America and Bucky, and let the other volumes in the series be a re-examination of the early days of the character. There was some controversy over the title by people with too much time on their hands, but the series was on track for a July 2008 start date. For some reason, Marvel eschewed the usual numbering system of issues 1 through 6, and instead opted for a thoroughly 90s issue 0 to start the series, which debuted on schedule. And then, nothing happened. And then, nothing continued to happen. For seven years. And then, it did the impossible. It rose, fighting the odds, beating down every other announced but never completed comic book project to vanquish its foes and emerge bloody and beaten, but victorious. A bit like Captain America himself, really. Captain America has been an odd bird since his revival in the 1960s. If you, lovely listener, were to reread the early Cap stories in the Marvel Masterworks volume, you will see Stanley wrestling with Joe Simon and Jack Kirby's creation, trying to make him relevant in the modern world. He doesn't quite succeed. The early tales of suspense strips are entertaining but perfunctory. A villain will rise, Cap will fight and vanquish him. The end. Cap's stoic brand of heroism and can-do attitude was out of place in the 60s. This is no more apparent than in Tales of Spence issue 61, which sees Cap in Vietnam. Captain America was, let's not forget, a propaganda tool, a way for America to react to the war in Europe before actual involvement. Cap was fighting the good fight before his country was. But in the grey world of the 1960s, Cap struggled to find his place. Stan accommodated this by setting stories back in the war, and suddenly the strip came to life. This was Captain America's place in the world. To not have him in World War II would be unthinkable. For reasons lost to time, readers didn't respond to this, and these stories were revealed to be Cap regaling the Avengers with tales of the past. But Stan had cracked the code. Cap was struggling because he was a man out of time. He didn't belong. His attitude and demeanour were of the past. This was a brave new world. So Stan made that part of the character. Almost overnight, this addition of angst to the strip and the character made Captain America a proper Marvel character. He suddenly had doubts and fears. An old flame was added to the mix. He clashed with people whose ideology differed from his own. He fretted about his country and what it was becoming. He became political. He became interesting. Therefore, it makes sense to explore his early days again in light of the changing times. As Loeb points out in his introduction, war isn't roses and champagne. Soldiers come back from war changed men. Even in World War II, the last good war, an oxymoron if ever there was one, the experience forever altered lives. Loeb wanted to explore that without rewriting or revising history. Captain America White has covers by Tim Sale. As with Iron Man Extremist, the covers are all poster images. Good for what they are, but much of a muchness. Issue 1 is Cap and Bucky running into battle with explosions in the background, with Bucky holding the US flag. Issue 2 is Cap holding his shield aloft in front of the US flag. Issue 3 is Cap and Bucky charging into battle in front of the US flag. Issue 4 is Cap and Bucky running into battle with fighter planes in the background. Oddly, there is no flag. Issue 5 has a close-up of Cap and Bucky as fighter planes fly behind them. And Issue 6 has Cap and Bucky in shadow, backs to each other as if at odds, in front of, you've guessed it, the US flag. 
I liked this. It ties into the patriotic nature of the character and the times these stories took place. Each issue is dedicated to Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. Do you have any opinion on the covers to these particular stories? I think they're good. They're nice. But uh, maybe that one isn't. Issue yeah. two isn't. That looks very scrappy. I prefer but the black and white ones. We're already separating ourselves from the Colours trilogy before we've even opened. Why? The, 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 because they all have... All the Colours trilogy on and all the covers are all similar. Yeah. In that. Oh, well, so these it's, are. But they're not. Why not? Okay, so Hulk Grey. Yeah. They're all grey covers that had the... Oh, right. Daredevil Yellow were all yellow with Daredevil that, yeah. So... I, I get Usually what you're saying. with the muse in the background. Yeah. And this is completely different. I see what you're saying, because there is, there is a feeling, having now read this, that it doesn't actually feel a part of the Colours trilogy. I mean, no, it was never meant to be a trilogy. Yeah. There was never it anything... Was just, it just became that, because... Yes. Yeah. And it, there was never anything saying they couldn't have carried on doing one a year. Yeah. From that point on, in which case we'd up to be, what, like, volume 10 or something by now? Mm. Because they, they have talked many times about doing an Iron Man volume, because they love doing something with Iron Man in Hulk Grey, so they've yeah. talked about doing Iron Man. Um, I kind of think Extremis has removed the need for an Iron Man version, because he updated the origin in that, didn't he? Well, they weren't... They were never updates, were they? They were more set in the... Yeah, they, they kind of existed in this nebulous world that could have been the 60s, but possibly wasn't because you could tell an Iron Man story about him being in Vietnam yeah because it, it would fit with all the other stuff they've yeah. done okay alright well and they, they have talked about doing the Fantastic Four right which would be an interesting one Fantastic Four Orange I think we decided <laughs> is that a cult I don't know they could do a Nick Fury and the Howlers one but they've done that in this the yeah Nick Fury Green because <laughs> the Cause, and, and make Army. it from the point of view of Reb he yeah. was the youngest member of the Howlers and therefore green. I, I meant because of the colour of the uniforms. So. Alright, but well, mine's better. Okay, right. <laughs> In this particular instance, <laughs> my idea is better than yours. Green means rookie. Means yeah, new. No, 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 yeah. So, like, tell it from the point of view of Reb. Okay. Who was the newest member of the team? So. Surfer. Silver. Yeah, well, I suppose we should address the controversy. <laughs> I say a controversy about the title. The title, having now read it, is clearly a reference to Catch Black and White View of the World. Which only comes apparent. In those last couple well, of issues. Well, isn't that true of all of the titles, really? Grey, because of his colour. Well, all right. Yellow, that one's pretty costume. Yeah, but grey can be his mood. Blue, because of his mood. Yeah. So the blue and the grey one work because you can be in a grey mood. You can be feeling down. Yeah. Which is also blue, I suppose. But, yeah. I mean, you know. It was only a controversy for people looking to find the controversy. Yeah. All of the titles for this series are from films from the 30s and the 40s. Issue 1, or issue 0, however you want to phrase it, was um, It Happened One Night. Private Steve Rogers and Fort Lehigh camp mascot James Buchanan Barnes are taking in a show at the theatre. As the newsreels unspool, Captain America is the star attraction. Barnes is enthralled, Steve, bless so. At Fort Lehigh, Steve runs into his personal nemesis, Sergeant Duffy, before retiring for the night. However, Steve's idea of retiring is to don the star-spangled costume of Captain America, but he is interrupted by an overkeen James Barnes who has no concept of knocking before entering. Cap informs the top brass of his faux pas, and whilst they wait for a response, James suggests having him become Cap's partner. 
after a training montage, word comes back. The POTUS likes the idea of Cap having a teen partner. It's good for the draft. Provided with a costume and mask, James adopts the name Bucky. The first mission together is behind enemy lines, preventing Nazi saboteurs from mining the coastline. Bucky slips up, causing a Nazi to shoot the explosives. As the explosions start, Cap pulls Bucky out. Cap gives Bucky a hard time, saying that a slip-up like that could cost him his life in the field. Bucky doesn't see the problem. The bad guys blew up, the good guys won. As Cap reflects on the events later, maybe if he'd been harder on Bucky, he'd still be alive. Uh, it happened one night, as I mentioned, is a Frank Crapper screwball comedy. This one starring Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert from 1934. All of them are Capra titles, as I mentioned in the opening. One of the main characteristics of Steve Rogers throughout the years is his humility and humbleness. Bucky is all about Cap on the newsreels. Steve plays it down. I'm sure he didn't win the war on his own, he states, which I liked. Mm. thought that was a nice moment. You didn't like this chapter much at all, did you? I didn't. Why not? It didn't sit right with me. I felt, I felt the art was not bad, but not good. It's not Tim Sale, and he's certainly not at his best. This, it looks like it's been coloured in in crayon. So that's what I liked about it the most. Oh, no, I don't you dislike You can see that. the pencils, you can yeah. see his pens and all that. And it's got that pastel-y feel to it. Yeah, that's it. Pastel's not crayon. Something about the artwork didn't sit right with me. Right. Oh, see, I didn't. I liked the uh, artwork. Something about the dialogue and the characterisation didn't fit. Well, I got that when he did stuff like this, he was paying homage to the scattergun dialogue of the movies. The quick-fire comedic exchange between Steve and Sergeant Duffy. I actually thought that was quite funny. Where have you and your girlfriend been? And he's talking about Bucky. Yes. Which I quite like. At the movie, Sarge, I told him, What if I needed you here? You got one of them Dick Tracy two-way wristwatches? That would come in handy. I like all that back and forth. No, it's it's it was more the way Bucky and Captain America spoke to each other. That it... Something... I, I, can't, I can't point to what it is, so I right. can't exactly help my argument. But it just didn't sit right with me. Yeah, there, there, there are bits I can poke fingers at, but none of them really in this issue. All right, is that later on? Yeah. Okay. All right, we'll uh, we'll we'll start that later. Um, the actual early portions of the story, like that, what I just quoted between Duffy and, and Cap, is of oh, Steve Rogers, actually not Cap. Uh, a straight out of the early comics. Steve had an antagonistic relationship with Sergeant Duffy. Bucky does just blunder in. On, on on cap changing and then there's a quick train and, and Bucky is his partner and it's all rather quick and sometimes it does take a, a movie to reimagine this scenario in a way that would work but I suppose there is kudos to Globe for sticking with the comics here because the similarities to Batman and Robin mm. would probably be too blatant for moviegoers which, so I see why they changed it for, for Captain America the First Avenger but it is it is Batman and Robin, isn't it? Yeah. Let's be honest. Him giving him the costume of like in a candlelit room. Yeah. And yeah, I mean they don't do the swear to me scene. Yeah. Well, I did they... like they don't call you Steve America. Yeah, I like that as well. I thought that was fun and some good like he needs a name. And uh, we have a name problem? Well they don't call you Steve America. Mm. And he's like, Oh, okay. Well what's your solution? And he, he came up with he comes up with Bucky himself. That seems a bit silly given that his name's James Buchanan Barnes. And his yeah. nickname's Bucky, but 
Well, although his nickname's not Bucky in this, isn't it? But we'll 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 cover our line in the return of. Uh... Does Steve not look a bit not like Steve Rogers to you? Um, I think I don't. I don't think he doesn't look like Steve Rogers. I I don't know. Does he's not? I mean, my Captain America is a little. There's an amalgam of a lot. There's a lot of Jack Kirby in there, mm. and some John Romita Jr. But primarily Mike Zeck. And he doesn't look like Mike Zeck, Steve Rogers. Yeah. But I, mean, I can see what you're saying. But he, I mean, in this version, Bucky is allowed to be cap sidekick by the president, who thinks he'll be a good role model for the draft, which I liked. Yeah. I thought that was a very good in-story explanation for him having a teen sidekick. Even though he's only, like, 12. 12 or um, 14, thereabouts, um, yeah. Isn't the draft 18? Well, Yeah. These are valid points. So what the president <laughs> is saying is it'll be good for the draft because if you're 18 and you're not signing up, yeah, but look, look at look this 12-year-old yeah. who is. <laughs> look at this kid doing his duty. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that does work. Yeah. Yeah. All right, fair enough. I'll, I'll give you that. Uh, Lobe has a good handle on the relationship. Like you said, I, the Steve America bit was fun. And Lobe does make a little bit more sense than the original comics. In the original comics, he's already called Bucky. Right. Before he takes on the mantle of, of Cap's sidekick. Given that that's supposed to be a secret, mm. it doesn't really make sense that he would adopt the name that everybody knows him by. I suppose, yeah, So in yeah. this, he doesn't have him be called Bucky until after he becomes Bucky. Mm. So that's an alteration that does make Captain sense. Captain America is one of those weird ones for me, because I can never tell whether people do know he's Steve Rogers or not. Yeah, it's one of them, and they kind of play fast and loose with it. It's, it's the idea that he, in, they kept his identity secret because he was a, a tool, a propaganda tool, a symbol within Surely the comics. Telling everyone his name and his story is more of a powerful propaganda yeah. story than... Yeah, those. but aren't people going to want to say, I want to volunteer for what he's got? Uh, yeah. And they can't replicate that. So, I don't know. I don't know what they are. Maybe the idea that the, the symbol is more than a man... Like anyone can be Batman. Yeah, that yeah. kind of thing. So, like they go on and on about in Tim Christopher Nolan's Batman movies, isn't mm. it? So, maybe it's something like that. I don't know. I mean, clearly the president knows who he is. Yeah. And there must be certain higher-ups who know who he is. Whereas in the films, it, he doesn't really have a secret identity at all, does he? He just is Captain America. Yeah. So, you, you've kind of... In the films, you've kind of removed the need for him to wear a mask. Yeah. Really. But, I don't, I don't know. Which... Everyone knows Steve Rogers is Captain America, which is going to be interesting to have Civil War pans out mm. because of that very idea. Uh, as with all of the Colors books, Loeb relies on first-person narration, as if the story's been related to us, the readers, at some future date. This does tie in with Tales of, of Suspense, issue 72, where we learn Cap's been regaling the Avengers with Tales of War. But in this particular instance, it doesn't work as well as with the other Colors books, where yeah. we're given a very definite point in time where the narration of this story is taking place. Like Spider-Man, Peter Parker is narrating all those tapes to Gwen Stacy, isn't he? Yeah. And Bruce Banner's on the couch with Doc Samson, isn't he? Yeah. So there's a, a very definite place that we're being told the story from. That doesn't happen in this. Maybe it's on the bike ride to the statue. Well, he's just thinking about it himself. Yeah. It could be, I suppose. Because he's directing it towards Bucky. Yeah, and he, it, it's not like he is telling the story in the narration boxes. He's not, which, again, that bothered me. Because he's, he's not telling a story, he's definitely not telling us what's happening. Yeah. And so, there's a story happening, but then it's Cap going, 
well, you are always my best mate, and then I let you die. But if, if that's the case, then, why does he suddenly stop halfway through his monologue to himself to think about being unfrozen by the Avengers, which he does at the beginning of issue two? Yeah, well, this is where it definitely felt like it's been eight years. Right. Because the art works differently, and we're getting a second beginning. In that... Because this should be at the beginning. Yeah. So, this is the second issue one. In that you can skip out zero, and he wakes up in the present, and then he, he thinks back. So, issue zero is irrelevant, because of this present-day beginning. Yeah, but then you've got issue one carries on Bucky's already in action so it's not like you can place issue zero after issue one explaining how he became Bucky so yeah you're kind of right the narrative's a little bit disjointed there probably because of the time gap well what was I mean we don't know what the time gap was was the time gap Tim Sale or was it Jeff Loeb's involvement with Marvel TV I don't want to go out on a limb Mm. but it might have something to do with the TV right (laughs) (laughs) what you mean circuit (laughs) because <laughs> right, it was funny yeah yeah, yeah it was, but it, it makes sense for Jeff Loeb's involvement in TV to to yeah. slow the, the project down yeah all right, but let's be brutally honest these scripts can't have taken that long to write no because they don't take that long to read no I mean Tim Sale's art is, is scratchier I think this time around Mm. the ink wash sets it apart from the other series and I don't know if I like that this is set apart from the other series his work looks great on the present day bits because when he's with the Avengers waking up you don't get panel borders Mm. it's just those white lines and it's really grungy and moody the bits with uh, Nick Fury look like a nice mix of Steranko and Kirby and then we get right back into the pastel-y World War 2 stuff yeah, that's See, for true. me, this is where the art gets better. As of issue one? Yeah. Because oh, that was issue zero. Yeah. Alright, okay. Well, before we leap into two properly... Or one. Or one, yeah. <laughs> Good point. It is the return of... Oh, continuity <laughs> nitpicks. <laughs> we rehearsed that, didn't we? we yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, continuity nitpicks is back. As before, the caveat that this is just us having a little bit of fun. Yeah. When poking holes in the continuity. Um, we did this in the other three... Colours trilogy. I think we dug it out on something else as well. We've done it a few times. I don't yeah. remember what it was, but it's always a good laugh. It's very time-consuming to actually do. You enjoy it though, which is weird. I do thoroughly enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> I do thoroughly enjoy leafing through old issues of Tales of Suspense and old issues of Sergeant Fury, trying yeah. desperately to find: did this happen? Did this not happen? If it did happen, now is it different? And all I love all that. I'm yeah. actually a big fan of all that. You put more work into that than the rest of the show. Well, with a story like this. Yeah, Let's be brutally honest, continuity nitpicks is the most work of the show. That's this, this, the, the, this took no time at all to read. Mm. It took very little time to actually synopsis, because not very much happens per issue. Yeah. So I was actually grateful to have continuity nitpicks. Because it was something to do. Well, and also this, this episode would have been really short. Yeah. So anyway, continuity nitpicks. Issue zero is a retelling of Tales of Suspense issue 63 from March 1965. Loeb skips over Cap's actual origin, which covered the first six pages of that ten-page story, and expands the last four pages into a full issue. He's not entirely successful at it, as there's less actual meat here than there is in the original issue, Mm. which Stan crams a lot into, because he was Stan and Jack Kirby. Yeah. Uh, The newsreel footage Steve and James are watching seems to be a nod to page six of that Tales of Suspense issue, where that did actually happen. Right. So that was a nice touch to allow for the editing that they've done. 
Uh, Steve's antagonistic relationship with Sergeant Duffy is played more for laughs in this than it is as the, in the original comics. Perhaps as a homage, Duffy isn't named in White One, just as he isn't named in Tales of Suspense. He, is, he would ultimately only get his name in Tales of Suspense issue 64. Right. Not in his original first appearance. That could have been a nod to the fact that he wasn't named in his original first appearance. So, you know. Likewise, Loeb doesn't mention what this kid is doing on an army camp. Bucky's position as camp mascot is established in Tales of Suspense issue 63, where it states as a footnote, so it's just kind of tossed away, right. that he was adopted after his father died in basic training, so they kept him on the camp to look after him, basically. What happened to his mum is never mentioned. Right. Bucky is referred to as the camp mascot in Chapter 4 of Captain America White. But at this point, it's just it's just not mentioned. I think I do prefer the two friends from Brooklyn. The, the movie version? Yeah, yeah. to just, just a kid, though. So you prefer them being contemporaries? Because they're clearly supposed to be roughly the same age yeah. in First Avenger, aren't they? Mm. But Bucky's, like, grew up and filled out, and Steve's just kind of a skinny runt. Yeah. So, yeah, okay. I, I don't mind the movie version at all. I think the movie did a good job of, of updating it. I mean, I think we'll mention later, but we may as well do it now while we're talking about it, that sometimes it does take something like that to strip it down to retell it, mm. to actually go, well, all right, maybe this is a better version of the story. Yeah. And maybe this is where Marvel isn't as slavish to the comics, but they are as slavish to the intent of the comics. Because they get the essence more than... Yeah. The... You know, Cap and Bucky are still best mates. Yeah. Bucky's death still turns him up. And how Bucky dies is, is still roughly the same, mm. if not completely. So the the beats are there, the emotions are there, but it's not. But the it's same. not the same. And in some, like I said, the movie by doing it the way the movie does it, it completely eliminates any similarities to Batman and Robin. Yeah, which is a clever move on their part for a film. Yeah. Whereas you know in the comics you can keep it that way if you want to, but I actually prefer the film version. Yeah this, but, you know, that's just me. Uh, Tales of Spence issue 63 eschews any faffing around with the President of the United States, or any training scenes. Bucky just immediately jumps to the idea of being Cap's partner, and in the next panel, they're on a mission. Cap does say that Bucky will require a lot of training, so Loeb uses this to expand upon the idea of Cap risking a kid in battle. To be fair, this wasn't that big a deal in 1942, certainly not as is is now. If we assume Steve is around 1920, then Bucky is 14, 15-ish, thereabouts, kids left school and got jobs at 15 in the 40s. Mm. So applying a modern sensibility to this is ignoring history. Yeah. Like, my nan and granddad both left school at 14 with a view to going out and working. Mm. And my granddad was in the Navy for 15. So, you know. Um, still, Loeb's reason does make sense without pandering to modern audiences. Yeah. You know, like you say, you can poke holes in it. <laughs> that the president's willing to let this 14-year-old guy do it when the draft is... I mean, well, the thing is, maybe that's why Bucky's wearing a mask, so they don't know how old he is. I suppose. What they, could have, kid. what they could have played with was yeah. the safest place for Bucky was by Captain America's side. Yeah. And then that ultimately haunts him because... Yeah, because they were plugging that as, as propaganda. That's, yeah. That would work. Mm. Yeah, all right, very good. Um... In the original comics, there is no indication where Bucky gets his costume. Whereas right. here, it's a gift from the president. Yeah. Which, again, makes sense. And the battle with the Nazi saboteurs is better explained and more of a romp in the Tales of Suspense issue. Cap and Bucky score a clear victory. And it's generally a happy ending mm. in Tales of Suspense. Here, Bucky screws the mission up 
and it's just dumb luck that Cap and Bucky win, isn't it? Yeah. So that's that's quite a significant change from the original story. Uh, nothing particularly egregious. Mm. It's not like when we did the Spider-Man one and he's taken bits from separate issues that happened three or four issues apart and blended them into one. Yeah. So nothing nothing like that. I suppose they're setting up... They've already set up from the start that Bucky dies. Yeah. So him failing the first mission is just that setup, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose so. That, that's ultimately one of my problems with the story. But we'll, we'll get to that when we get to the end. Uh, part two is called You Can't Take It With You, which is another Frank Capra film, this time from 1938, based on a play from 1936. 1938 being the issue I was created. Nice. I thought it was, was quite a nice... Well, not created, but first published. Steve wakes up. He's surrounded by strange people who tell him this isn't 1945 anymore. Sitting in church later, Nick Fury presents him with Bucky's Medal of Valor. Steve's mind flashes back to when the world makes sense. Alright, so that's where all of this is happening then. So he's telling us the story from being in church. So from a narrative point of view, in the reprint, I know I'm interrupting the synopsis here, but from a narrative point of view, wouldn't it have made more sense in this collected edition? to take these opening one, two, three, four, five, six pages of number one and put them at the beginning of issue zero. Because you could have done that. You yeah. could take those four pages, put them there, and then it's it narratively it just makes more sense. But then you don't have the intentional page-by-page page Nick Fury. Why not? Because what they're going for this is the friendly relationship Cap and Nick Fury have together mm. then played against the first meeting. Yeah. That's on a back-to-back, page-to-page thing. Yes. You, well, you would have lost that if you moved the pages. Arguably, but by the same token, then it's a callback to the beginning of the story. Yeah, but the problem with it isn't... It's, again, it comes back to the gap. Because it's not a problem with where they're placed, it's a problem with the actual script. Right. Because this is written to be one issue, issue zero is written to be one issue. Yeah. And they don't work as well if you put them chronologically. Well, in the reprint, when this was finally released, mm. they released issue one and then whacked issue zero in at it. Because, like, you know, people probably forgot issue zero came out. Yeah. But they put issue zero after issue one. Right. And that makes even less sense. Yeah. Because, yes, Cat wakes up at the beginning of the issue. But then he's telling us the story of his first mission with the Howlers to then flash back to tell us how Bucky became Bucky to then carry on telling us the story of his first mission with the Howlers. Unless there was a, oh, before I carry on, I should mention how Bucky became my sidekick. Uh, yeah, I've completely screwed up narratively. <laughs> I mean, he's just come to from a coma. Yeah. And so you know. his mind's not... All right, okay. All right, fair enough. I'll, I'll give you that. It'll work, but <laughs> it I'll give it. it. Anyway, you know, the story continues. Christmas 1942, North Africa. Behind enemy lines, which is where Captain America seems to spend a lot of his time. Sergeant Nick Fury and Dum Dum Dugan are in trouble again. Under fire, the two men bicker and refuse to surrender. All looks bleak, until the roar of a motorcycle and two colourful costumes zoom in and save the day. Fury is not impressed, and he proves it by taking the motorcycle. Back at base, in this case a hotel in Casablanca, Steve proposed to meet Nick Fury face-to-face at a nearby bar. Dum-Dum teases Steve about his appearance, tall, blonde, blue-eyed, and a brawl breaks out. Fury is not impressed, and he proves it by taking the damage to the bar out of all their salaries, including Steve. Over the Atlantic Ocean, the Howlers, Bucky and Cap are shot down. The plane crashes into the sea, and everyone disappears 
Beneath the Waves. Uh, this issue now opens at the time of Avengers number four. Just as Cap is thawed out, Loeb comfortably ignores us, having Iron Man tell us the year Cap has awoken in. But by the sliding timeline of the Marvel U, it is now in between 2006 and 2009. Right. Because they took such a long time to come out. Okay. So, Captain America now only came out of the ice in 2009. Ah, that... Because of the costumes and what they're evoking. Yeah. I prefer this to be the 60s. See, the thing with Captain America, so with Marvel, generally, it's best just not to think I about think that. I think the Colours trilogies are better if you read them as these being told when the original stories came out. Yeah, certainly Spider-Man Blue is very definitely evoking the 60s. Yeah. This is, it's, it's kind of nebulous, because let's be honest, the majority of it takes place in World War II. Yes. So, but yeah. I think, I think you're right. Yeah. yeah. I agree with that. Uh, I find it very odd that Nick Fury says, I never saw you as a church-going type to Steve Rogers. Right. Isn't Steve Rogers a card-carrying church-goer? I don't know. Of everyone in the Marvel Universe, you know when they never assign a political affiliation or a religious affiliation to any of their characters, unless the it's endemic Parker to the character. Murder, Matt Murder. Well, Peter Parker never has. I thought Peter Parker was Catholic. No, I've said I can totally understand Peter right, Parker being Catholic, okay. given that he's driven by guilt. Yes. But Matt Murdock is specifically a Catholic, and okay. Ben Grimm has been specifically said that he's Jewish. Right. So, in those cases, it, it goes towards it. I, but, um, and Steve actually says, yes, well, desperate times. I yeah. just, that, that did not Because he's got that line in the Avengers, hasn't he? I know God, ma'am. Right, God yeah. don't wear a cape. I like that line, and so this kind of, you know, negates that. There are certain members of the Marvel Universe I could see going into church would give them. I don't buy Tony Stark as a churchgoer. Yeah. Or Reed Richards. But Steve? I don't know. I don't know why that, that stuck in my craw, but mm. I just thought it was a bit of mischaracterization. I don't know why. Um, why would Steve and Nick discuss eye patches in the first place? And why would Nick think an eye patch made him look like James Bond? I must have missed that film. Where know. James Bond wore an eye patch, but they cu- it's a later scene, isn't it? Yes, that's, that's, so it, that's what it's it, calling back to. Yeah, it is calling back to a forward scene. Yeah, that for these characters happened in the past, but it still doesn't make any sense. I suppose. And what what um, kind of bothered me a bit was this is Bucky's medal. Yeah, I'm going to hold on to yours. Yeah, and Captain until America, you die. And Captain America's not like. I want my medal. <laughs> no, Cap doesn't really want awards or anything. I suppose. So that, that, that didn't bother me. But, you know, it, 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 it did seem to me I'm going to wait until you die. Yeah. And Steve's like, oh, cheers, Nick. <laughs> Thanks very much. I, I did like that Stevie's angry in this story. Mm. In the originals, Stan Lee has him just be filled with self-pity. This is an angry Steve Rogers. Angry that he's lost so much of his life and anger that he allowed Bucky to die. Which is more relatable than self-pity. Yeah, and it is. Because he's, he's angry that he blames himself, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there are certain times, certain characters in the Marvel Universe where self-pity, you just want to smack him across the face and say, get on with it. Yeah. Which I know isn't sensitive. <laughs> but but the know, comic characters are not real yeah, people. Yeah, the comic characters are not real people. Whereas uh, Steve being angry yeah. is better, I think. Anger is an energy. Mm. As John Lydon once said. The oranges are really cool, though, in this bit. Yeah, the orange colours of uh, Fury and Dugan's scene. The explosions. It it really helps separate the time period as well. 
because you got your cool modern days. The blues. With your heavy blacks. Because yeah. there's no real line work on that. It's all shadow. Yeah. And then you cut straight to your pastel shadow of fires and that. I think what's interesting about this this particular chapter is all three of the different art styles that are through the book are all apparently in the space of four pages. Mm. Like the, the ink wash of the modern day Avengers stuff. He doesn't have any of that on the Nick Fury meeting. No. That's just straightforward blacks, shading, shadows, everything. And then when you go to the World War Two stuff, it's like it's shot from the pencils because of that haze to it. Yeah. I like that. I like the different the way he's done different pages with a different style. I also think this Nick Fury Steve Rogers encounter in the church, the shaft of light just on top of it in a nice touch, is very Bruce Tim. Yeah. I thought that was really quite impressive. Uh, Dugan and Fury's banter seems a bit more mean spirited than it is in the original Howling Commandos comics. Yeah. But is it not more of that buddy means? Yeah, it is. Like it that is. scene in Preacher. Yeah, pretty much. But yeah, okay. okay. That is a great shot of the. Uh, it's, it's a Harley, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Cap drives a Harley. Were we not? Suppose. Hmm. Uh, Fury's negative reaction to Cap and Bucky, who he calls circus performers, is a nice expansion of the original comics, where again. Fury had no time for him to right. start off with. Fury felt the war was being fought by real men in real situations, and you're a costume clown. A we don't need you. Tool. Yeah, we don't need you. Yeah, we we're, men fight this war, not people in a stupid costume. Which is is a fair viewpoint. Yeah, it's a valid viewpoint, and I, I love his line of dialogue. Just when I think things couldn't get any worse. It always does. Mm. That was good. I like Nick Fury in this, which is why I want them to do a Howling Commandos one. Yeah. Preferably with a bit more meat to the bone than this. Yeah. But I would like them to do it. I want a Howling Commandos film. You're not going to get a Howling Commandos film at this, because you've not got Nick Fury. I suppose. We've, you can't have, and you can't have a Howling Commandos without a Nick Fury. That is true. I mean, I know we've got Howling they Commandos. Wouldn't even, they wouldn't even have to do it in World War Two. Maybe not now. Well, because we've seen them in um, Agent Carter, so yeah, you could do a Vietnam War movie with the Howling Commando. Mm. Or a Netflix movie. Yeah. A Netflix movie would do. But uh, yeah, I would like to see the Howling, Howling Commandos. mature straight-to-Netflix series. It doesn't have to be mature any more than Daredevil or Jessica Jones is. I suppose, but having a faithful World War Yeah, series. well, a Saving Private Ryan with the Howling Commandos in it. Yeah. That would, yeah, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be happy with that. I think that would be really cool. Uh, the Batman and Robin comparisons are really hard to ignore when Bucky's cracking jokes left, right and centre. Although it's nice to see that the teamwork's improved. Yeah. Since the last issue where they, they both made a, an almighty cough up. I did like this scene in the middle here. This scene I felt was a bit weird. Why did you think that? Because Bucky, it's establishing here that Bucky has much more experience with girls given that he's only 14. I don't know how. Yeah, but it's the fact that I don't know whether it's just me, okay. but Bucky and Captain America talking about... Well, Bucky kind of jabbing at Cap for being a virgin. Yeah, oh, I'm glad that that's what you got from that. Because I, I felt like that doesn't have a place in Captain America. Well, it's kind for of it implied in him, the film, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, but for him wanting to have a relationship after he gets out, because then he's like... A man at a time, never had that kind of release. Fine, whatever. Mm. But for twelve-year-old Bucky to jab at Cap for being a virgin didn't sit right with yeah. me. Yeah, well, the actual scene is because he's playing big brother, little brother. Yeah. All right. And the actual scene is um, there'll be girls there. What's that got to do with anything? I'm just saying, with you being a a what? 
Well, it's just we both know I've had more experience in this department. I mean, it wasn't that long ago you were 4F. And Cap just stirs at it. Mm. And there is an article on multiversity.com that I wanted to draw attention to that reads into this that Cap is gay. Rather than a virgin, which is clearly that you came to that independent of me. Now I quite like that website, so I go on it a fair bit. But that's 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 dubious, isn't it? To read that into that scene when you've got no evidence from any—I mean, it's not like the Iceman thing, where there you can actually point to certain parts of the comic where you can go, okay, we can interpret that as Iceman is Bobby Drake is gay. Right. There's never any indication in any of Captain America's comics or anything that he's gay. Yeah. So to read that into that scene, I See, thought was very... That's you bringing something, really bringing something well, to it that the, the author didn't the intend. The way it's written, and this could just be me, if you read it thinking that Captain America's gay, then you could put that make, this scene makes sense. Yeah. But if you don't bring that in, then it reads as him being a virgin. Well... So it's whether or not you think Captain America's gay that changes whether he's gay in this scene. Yeah, and this does go to the authorial intent versus interpretation of the work once it's out of the author's hands. Yeah. Which are two completely different things. Again, as they point out on, on the Mark Kermode movie show, sometimes the last person you want to ask about the art is the artist. Because what it means to the audience can sometimes be completely different yes. to what the, the guy intended. With that being said... You came to the completely independent conclusion that that's what Bucky meant. Yeah. As did I. And I felt that that particular article was quite dubious to go there. Because then he bases his entire reading of the rest of the strip on his supposition that that's what this scene means. And he takes it down a slightly seedier path. His reading of it makes sense with the way it's written. Mm. But only if... Again, if you bring that. Yeah. Well, Loeb does... Uh, did you read the interview at the back of the book? I didn't. Right. I looked at the pretty pictures. Well, obviously, yeah. Uh, the interview at the back of the book, Loeb clearly says, yes, it's a love story. And he does actually say, and I expect people to bring that nudge-nudge-wink-wink wink attitude to it. Yeah. But that's not... Again, the Batman and Robin comparison. Yeah. But that's not my intent. I want to tell a big brother love story. Well, ultimately, that's where I think the biggest failure with that story is... What, this? Yeah. And yeah. that all of the trilogies, well, all of the books are about the muses. Yeah. And it works on a relationship level and on a love level and that. And I understand that Captain America, Steve Rogers, had a love for Bucky, but it doesn't work. It doesn't... There's something about it that doesn't work when it's your mate. It fits in with the lost love angle of the other books. Yeah. But, I, see, I just, I just always read it as Big Brother, Little Brother. Mm. Or, or, or there's, there's this idea society has that men can't love other men in a hetero life mate way. Yeah, that's society's problem. Yeah, that's not the story's problem. I got that's what it was with the story, but yeah. I don't think it worked because it's it wasn't a heterosexual man and woman relationship like the other ones were. Right, and I don't know if that's a problem with me. Yeah. Well, it could, but well, the guy in the article... I didn't write the guy's name down, and I should have done, really. But the guy in the article did make the point that maybe this would have been better if it had been about Peggy Carter. It would have, I think. Because his argument, and it's quite a good one, mm. was that the Peggy Carter aspect is overshadowed by his relationship with Sharon Carter, yeah. who is Peggy's daughter. And with her popularity in the films and the TV show, Maybe if they'd made this about his relationship with her, hmm. 
And because you could still play that whole lost love angle by the time he comes out of the ice, Peggy's dead. Yeah. All of that would still work, and it would fit thematically with Hulk Grey, which was Betty Ross and Bruce Banner, Daredevil Yellow, which was Karen and Matt, and Spider-Man Blue, which is Peter and Gwen. Mm. So, I, 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 although I didn't agree with his reasoning, his, his reading, sorry, of that scene, yeah. and how that coloured his perception of the entire book, I did agree with him that maybe it would have been better if it had followed the template of the other three, yeah. a bit about Stephen Peggy. Mm. And Bucky had just been a background character. Because yeah. there is a feeling, certainly on my part, that although Loeb is excellent at dealing with human emotion and feelings, there's, there's an element that the Bucky stuff has now been overplayed. Yeah. Now, maybe it wouldn't have been if this had come out eight years ago. Mm. But even then, well, Brubaker's Winter Soldier run was, was going on at that point, wasn't yeah. it? That's right. I, I do feel with this, it is very overdone issue by issue. Yes. In that... Because every single issue ends with, you died and it's my fault. And that's it. That's every issue. We have the same monologue repeated. Yeah. Yeah, it does repeat the same story beat. That's, that, that's true. And this, this issue... Cat's going crazy in the background. This issue is half an issue at best. Yeah, I mean, we have a great bit in the uh, the bar. Yeah. I thought that was... I really like. Oh, the bar room brawl's brilliant. And I like the art in it. I love Dum Dum Dugan. Going over to but him again. The bit with the women, though, you can interpret and misinterpret that as two completely different meanings. Especially when Dino says to, about Steve Rogers, "Are you going to share the wealth?" Because the girls are all over him because he's tall and buff and blonde yeah. and handsome, and uh, apparently he doesn't like girls. And Steve's like, "I never that what?" Yeah. And then Dum Dum walks over to him because. He's, he looks like one of the Nazi master racers. Yeah. And Dum Dum walks over so, to him. What's your story, Fritz? Sprechen de Deutsch? <laughs> but again, it's one of those scenes where if you have that misinterpretation of it, it it's only reinforced by bits like this. Yeah. I mean, there is an element there. If Loeb is aware of how some people will read it, then and he clearly sure, is, yeah, then, surely then maybe should. that line... Yeah. Shouldn't have been in it. Because that there is fueling the fire, isn't it? Or if so, at least a, a, a attempt to make it so it's e easier yeah. to interpret. Well, especially seen as, as well, there is a gay character in the Howling Commandos. I yeah, forget is, which one it is. Is, is, he it, is it Perky, Percy Pinkerton? Is he in the Howling Commandos or is he in Sergeant Rock's Bad Company where he's got the flower in his helmet? Isn't that... Are you mixing up Sergeant Rock with Percy Pinkerton? There is there is a camp character in one of them who has a flower in his helmet. Right, because uh, uh, was it Percy Pinkerton? Rock. I mean, that name kind of implies, yeah. you know. Anyway, so there is, you know, if you do want to explore that, there is a character that you can explore that with. And I think that would be quite interesting to explore that in World War Two. Yeah. Because Stan has said he intended that character to be gay. Mm. And it's just like they didn't make a big deal about it in World War Two. Or certainly the Howlers didn't make a big deal about it because they didn't care. Yeah. As far as they were concerned, he was with them. He did the job. He did the job well. That's all they cared about. That probably would be more controversial now than it would have been yeah. at the time. Yeah. So there, there you go. There's an angle for a Howling Commandos one, if that's what you want to do. Yeah. That could be quite an interesting story. How do you deal with that in World War II? Mm. How does big tough as Neil Sergeant Fury deal with one of the men under his command is gay? Because yeah. if you're not going to whitewash that, you've got to deal with it head on. And yeah. that could be your story. Nick Fury realising, doesn't matter what, he, what that, that part of his life does not matter. He's still here with me and he's fighting the good fight. Yeah. 
And that could be the story, Nick coming to that realisation. And that's a brave stance to take. Have Nick be a bigot at the beginning of the story. Yeah. And over the course of the story, as he gets to know him, he changes his opinion and his mind. And that would that it would be a stronger story now in this in, yeah. in the cultural world we live in yeah. at the moment than it would have been then. Dear Jeff, <laughs> you can have this story idea. <laughs> Love Andy and Michael. <laughs> Here's some pictures I drew. Please consider me. <laughs> well, Tim Sale's going to draw it, dude. He can. He can. Uh, you can do the variant covers. No, he can. He can paint over my layouts. <laughs> Tim Sale does not paint <laughs> over anybody's layouts. <laughs> Oh, yeah, like it's so a great page with the flame blow, blows up. Though. Oh yeah, yeah, it's pretty. I mean, the action bits are pretty good, but this is half an issue. Oh, they are. They all are. Yeah, I in mean, fact, this more than any. All six issues are one issue's worth of story. God, you can you imagine wasting eight years for that? I know. Would have been very, very infuriating. Um, the, the, I do love the line: "You don't always get to say everything you need to a person before someone you love dies." Yeah, I like that. Love's good at stuff like that. Isn't but it? then. Bucky doesn't even die in this issue. No. Which is what another problem with it, with this monologue about him blaming himself for Bucky dying, it doesn't happen. Yeah. It doesn't happen straight away. This story is written for people who knows Bucky and Captain America's history. Yeah. If you've never read a Captain America story in your life, this story will the the, the character and the emotions in this mean nothing at all. No, that's true. I mean, just before we carry on with, with continuity nitpicks for this, but just looking at the covers, all the covers were drawn in 2008. Right. So All, all the, the covers, covers are dated there. 2008, Ooh, apart from hawkers? the last one. Are those hawkers? It does look like it, on the cover of uh, issue 5. Anyway. Continuity and nitpicks. Uh, the only four page. <laughs> oh, well-oiled to machine. Uh. The opening four pages of this issue is a loose retelling of pages four, five, and six of Avengers number four from March of 1964. There are minor differences in posing, but Sale mimics Kirby very well. The dialogue is completely different, though. Uh, although Cap's first words are a scream of Bucky. Okay! So that's the same. Yeah. So that's, that's no different. Nobody actually tells Cap... He's not in 1945 anymore in Avengers number four. Mm. He wakes up, tells the Avengers what happened to Bucket, and then buggers off to explore New York, and he's just suddenly a war. The Avengers are pretty naff in this. Yeah, well, this is, this is pretty accurate retelling. I mean, right. we've read Avengers 4 for the, sto- for the, co- for the show, but you don't remember, do you? I, I don't. But Cap wakes up. Oh, yeah, it was one that was really naff, but is well remembered for yeah. it being. Yeah. yeah, the first half where Cap comes out of it is really good, and then the actual issue itself is not very strong at all. But it's like Cap wakes up, and then the Avengers just have no time for him. They slap him around and expect him to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, he goes from a different generation. <laughs> Deal with it. Don't talk to me about your problems. <laughs> Bottle it up inside. Uh, Loeb has Iron Man be the one inform him of the time differential which is a good use of a retelling like that yeah. that's the scene that doesn't happen in the Avengers number 4 and arguably it should do uh, the Nick Fury scene did not happen in the original at all mm. where he tells him about Bucky so that doesn't happen uh, the issue then moves into flashback mode as if him waking up in Avengers 4 isn't a flashback which it is, um, and starts adapting Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos issue 13 from December of 1964 it would, at this point, take far too long to detail the nitpicks and inconsistencies, and Loeb basically writes a completely new story 
of Fury's first meeting with Cap and Booker. There are similarities. There is a barroom brawl. Fury isn't overly impressed with Cap to begin with, but predictably comes around. And the mission is overseas. But other than that, it's a completely different story that in no way fits into the original chronology of the Sergeant Fury issue. Mm. I think they're in France, not Casablanca. Right. Which kind of plays into the end of the issue. Because they're moving to France. When when they're going on to France, yes. But this is a completely different telling of of that particular story. Part three is called Lost Horizons, which is a Frank Capra film. This time from 1937, based upon a 1933 novel by James Hilton. Weighed down by his shield, Cap hits the water hard. The Howlers and Bucky all surface, but with no sign of Cap, Bucky starts to panic. He dives deep to find his partner, locating him as he sinks like a brick. Bucky grabs Cap, but finds himself being pulled down with him. There is only one chance at survival. Reluctantly, Bucky cuts Cap's shield from his back. As the two men swim for the surface, the shield sinks to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Fury is not impressed, and he proves this by pointing out that even with Flagface around, they're still in the middle of the Atlantic with no hope of Earth support, no idea how far shore is, and there are sharks in the water. Cap is unbowed. Even without his shield, which he assures Bucky was the right call to make, they'll survive. You've just got to have a little hope. Cap's hope is rewarded as the Howlers reach the shores of France. Overnight, a pea soup fog drops in, making visibility near impossible. Cap and the Howlers battle on until a large mountain looms in their way. There isn't time to go around, they have to go over. Fury isn't impressed, and he proves this by pointing out that this mountain is at least 300 feet, and without something to make a finger hold, they're buggered. As if by magic, Namor the Submariner drops by with Cap's shield. They now have something with which to make a handhold. They soon wish they didn't. Reaching the top, a Nazi panzer tank awaits them. You just missed a duet. What did I miss? Three, two, one. We can't go over it. We both did that on the stairs. Going on. We're going on a bug hunt. We're not scared. So it's all around me now. We're going to do a bird. Anyway, Sale makes some magnificent choices with the art again in this issue. The ink wash is already established, but he changes it up considerably when the fog falls using a much lighter colour palette. The fog may be a computer effect, but it's very effective, isn't it? Yeah. I really like the fog. Or do you think that's just the pencils? I don't know. You can see the inks. Yeah. Um, very detailed inks on this one as well. Yeah. Uh, I think that's it, really, because this series is mostly heavy blacks. Yeah. But not done in the way Long Halloween did them. Right. So I think this is just really neat line work. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Uh, Loeb manages to capture the spirit and relationship with the Howlers really well, but he doesn't take any time to introduce them, does he? No. He doesn't. Yeah. And this is Cap's first meeting with them. That's that's a great Joe Hubert panel, though. What? Oh, Fury's face? Yeah. It is a great... But he's he's not other than Nick Fury. Cap doesn't know any of these people. No, well, Nick Fury's the main focus because yeah. he's his he's a man at a time. But he has Nick Fury's his anchor to World War Two. Yeah, he does. But it would have been given that Bucky develops a relationship with Reb. Yeah, who's the youngest of the Howlers. So he's probably only about 16, 17, 18, however old the draft was. 
that's it would have been nice to actually be introduced to them. We know Dum Dum Dugan and Nick, yeah. and then we get to know Reb a little Even bit. Even it's just one of those pages or panels where they, they like point in the arrows comments. to yeah. them all, yeah. I mean, 60s comics get mocked for that, but I feel... They work. Yeah, they work, and I feel that Cap would have, you know, been interested in everybody. Yeah, in the every, group, every soldier is important. Yeah, and it and it would have introduced them to the readers. I only knew who everybody was because I've read Harley Sergeant Fury comics. Right. So I bet you didn't know who they all were, did you? I didn't. See, so uh, there's a power to Bucky cutting Cap Shield off when he's sinking. That's that's hard to describe, really, because it is only an object. Mm. At the end of the day, Loeb does a great job with the narration boxes, talking about how we assign value to a person's property even after death where we should really assign value to the person's life. And I do like that when he says, where's my shield, the howlers are basically like horrified at yeah. what Bucky's done. And then Cap just turns around and said, no, you did the right thing. Yes. That was good. It was. That was a nice turn. But then it's like, do you remember our problem, well, you will remember, our problem Batman versus Superman where they killed Superman off and then in the same film brought him back. Yeah. He loses his shield, they make a big deal out of it, but then he gets it back with some hilarious deus ex. <laughs> Name all the show Mariner shows up. In a full splash page. Says, shouts, Imperious Rex! And, throw, and it's... But in the thing with it, though, the thing that makes it really stupid and campy, which may be why I liked it, right. is that it's at exactly the right time that they need the shield. Yeah. As they reach the bottom of the mountain, they need something that can make handholds. And I love Cap's smile on that panel. <laughs> so it, cheesy. It works because the invaders. Yeah. But it's hilarious because it is a stupid deus ex yeah. with, a, with an overdone, campy splash page of yeah. Namor. But it's the, probably the only bit of fun in this series. Yeah, it, 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 is, it is nice to just have him show up, hold the shield in and leave. It is stupid, but it's perfectly fun. Yeah. And it's kind of like Loeb knows that it's a little bit silly. Yeah, but it, it works because of it being silly. Yeah, it's a comic. Yeah. If we can't do silly in a comic, what can we do? I don't, yeah, I love Cap's cheesy. It's any salute. <laughs> it's a name. I thought that's brilliant. And it is dumber than dirt, but it's still great. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. I really did like it. I thought that was cool. Uh, Fury's line when, when Cap is found is funny. <laughs> well, well, look what the kid caught. Fry it up and we'll have it for dinner. Yeah. <laughs> Good to see you too, Fury. I like that. That was funny. Uh, as is his line about fighting the world with Little Off and Annie. <laughs> Nick Fury is funny in this book, is. which is why I want Loeb and Sale to do Island Commandos. Is that miserable, cynical funny? Yes, he's, he's absolutely brilliant. I really do like it. I think it's great. Fury has a really nice line in, in cynical wit throughout the, the story, mm. which is, is really good. And he, he mellows in his... Um, as he goes along yeah he does well he does, in yeah. now moments but one of the, the bits that I found quite funny about it was that the tank has a SWAT sticker as a crosser yeah. <laughs> it's like are we are we supposed to be doing a campy World War 2 stories anymore yeah. isn't Hogan's Heroes now passe <laughs> but yeah you're right it does have a SWAT sticker as a crosser it's like just so that we know that that's a Nazi tank yeah I think we'd have got that the, from the context of the, the story. The next, the next issue starts off with, oh, sorry, uh, sorry, old chum. <laughs> <laughs> we, we nearly shot the head off our allies. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> yeah, that would have been unfortunate. <laughs> Wouldn't it? Yeah, okay. All right, okay. 
Continuity and nitpicks. We did that one alright then. We did. That one wasn't bad. Uh, as with most of the Colors books, the middle chapters tend not to have many specific continuity problems. There are general continuity nitpicks, such as this being a completely different first meeting between Cap and the Howlers than Sergeant Fury 13, which I've already mentioned. But picking that apart seems churlish, because it's just so different. Mm. It's not even it's not even worth bothering with. The Bucky in this story is also slightly different from both the 60s stories and the Ed Brubaker version. I do think that's my problem with the whole thing. Right. Brubaker did such a good job of making this concept palatable. That anything less. Yeah, it, it, he made it not a Batman and Robin knockoff, and he made it so, yes, Cap could keep his hands clean, but Bucky did the dirty work. Bucky slit throats in the night. Yeah. Bucky did all that stuff that they didn't want Captain America to do. Bucky's what has to be done caps the face of it. Yeah. So Brubaker did such a good job with that that when you go back to this Batman and Robin version it now seems slightly simplistic mm. after what Brubaker did with it. So, I don't know. It's, 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 I suppose it kind of depends what you think of the idea of Captain America and Bucky. Yeah. And Brubaker's way of updating that works. It, yeah. But they, didn't, but they didn't really follow that too much in the movies, did they? Bucky's just a soldier. Mm. He's not the guy... But then they don't have Cap be Bucky's partner in the movies. So they can't really follow that paradigm. Because they can kill they? him off pretty much right after he rescues yeah. him. Yeah. So, yeah, alright, so that's just difficult. Interesting difficult. about Cover 4. Yeah. Those are Japanese planes. Well, it's alright, the Japanese fought against I know, but the Japanese aren't in this. No, they're not, but maybe, again, the, the cover I, was I, done in 2008. I know those are Japanese because I don't know names or anything, but that is the plane created by the guy that the Studio Ghibli film The Wind mm. Rises is yeah. about. Right. Okay. They were inspired by a fishbone. Oh, right. Because they have the perfect aerodynamity. Aerodynamiter. Yeah. That's how they work. Aerodynamics. <laughs> no, alright. Well, maybe in the original conception they fought the Japanese. Or he just got told to do Cap and Bucky in World War II poses. Yeah. Because the script wasn't done. Yeah, it's entirely possible he did all the covers based on loose outlines of what the scripts were going to become. Mm. So, yeah, alright, fair enough. Nice, nice catch. Part four, A Hole in the Head, is a 1959 Frank Capra film. The Howlers and Cap are captured and threatened by Nazi soldiers, but Cap isn't having none of that and fights back. He orders the Howlers to fall back and takes out the entire platoon single-handed. Fury isn't impressed, and to demonstrate this, moves to throw the Nazis over the cliff they just ascended. Cap says no, and ties them up instead. The Howlers adopt the Nazi uniforms, Fury with an eye patch, and they proceed on foot to Nazi-occupied France. They are stopped by a sexy lady named Marilyn, aka the Gypsy, Fury's contact in Paris. After a brief scuffle with the Leaper, where Gypsy is simply seeing if Cap is up to his rep, she informs them that she knew they were in disguise after finding the Nazi patrol. She was just teasing. She introduces her team, Le Cirque de la Révolution, and tells Cap she threw the Nazis over the cliff. This amuses the Howlers, if not Cap. As they move through the sewers towards Paris, Bucky informs Cap that Marilyn fancies him. That's why she's treating him so badly. Cap has no time to muse on this as they reach their destination. A Nazi rally. And at its heart, the Red Skull. Uh, the opening to this is good. Where the Nazis take them captive. Cap and the Howlers and Bucky. And Loeb gently mocks the real world idea of Cap having... Nazi soldiers tell Cap that they didn't think he was real. They thought he was a myth to sell war bonds and comic books. I do think that the comic book thing got a bit dull by the end of it. Why? Because they 
do bring it up several times that I thought it only happened in comic books. <laughs> oh, you're just a tool of comic books. Yeah, okay. Because right. once is funny. Yeah, this one's funny. Yeah. Because that's why he was created. Yeah, <laughs> but anything more than once is a bit too... Oh, we get it, Captain America's a comic character. Yeah. All right, fair enough. I like this first one. Anyway, I think it's good. Uh, th- I do like as well that he mocks him and the Howlers for bringing a child into battle. Yeah. That was funny. And mentions that soon they'll be arming women. As yeah. if women can't do this. And then in addition to allowing into his mindset, it does set up Gypsy later on. Yes. So I liked that. This, this Nazi idea that women, you know, they're not going to fight us. Staying back in the factories making yeah. bullets. Don't underestimate women. Like the Pat Benatar video. Yeah. I did like as well the Nazis um, mock the Howlers' varied ethnicity. Yeah. I thought that was a really nice touch. Allowing us to, again, into the Nazi mindset of thinking that anyone who isn't like them should be locked away in concentration camps. But, on the other hand, it kind of implies the Allies had their act together with regards to this, which isn't really true. After the war was over in 1945, many soldiers of differing ethnicity who'd fought for our country Mm. and with the Allies, specifically Britain, were asked, when are you going back home? Yeah. That's not our proudest moment, given that these guys fought for the country just as much. Yeah. Okay, a little bit of reality there. Uh, the battle with the Nazis is fast and furious. In contrast to the movies, Cat refuses to kill them, despite Dugan wanting to throw them off the cliff, which I thought, I thought was perfectly valid. Yeah, well, I didn't like this Captain America. Did you know? A Captain America who doesn't kill works in modern day. Yeah. But a Captain America in World War Two who doesn't kill... Just comes across as naive. Yeah, because then he's... A soldier... It's a soldier's job to kill, which yeah. is why I'm fine with a Captain America who kills... In but wartime. A, yeah, but a wartime Captain America with this kind of conscience might be interesting, if not out of character. I don't, I don't know. See, it depends which version you read. Cap, I mean, in the 60s they were tied up by the comics code, so Stan never had him actually kill anybody. Yeah. But the flip side of that is they vacillated on that through the years. Hmm. And ultimately I come on the same side as you do. This isn't like a Superman thing. Yeah. Captain America was a soldier fighting a war. And that ultimately is the end of the discussion, yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Um, it, Brubaker did address it as well, didn't he? Well, that, that's why he had Bucky be the one to do the hard right. work. Yeah. The, well, not the hard work, but you know, the dirty work. The covert. Yeah, the covert work. So Cap did keep his hands clean, so he's not specifically con- contradicting the canon. Yeah. But Cap, Bucky would have snuck back after this in Brubaker's run and Brubaker and Bucky would have slit all the throats while they were tied up yeah wouldn't he and Cap would never have known about it I don't know what Cap would have thought about it if he ever knew about it but you know I, I, I had no problem with that telling of it either that Bucky was the one who, who did the dirty work yeah I thought that was a nice updating of it it's a nice updating of the legend it represents two sides of real life again like so how we would like to be and how it really is. Mm. So I have no problem with that. Uh, although giving Nick the Nazi eye patch was a little bit too cute. Yeah. That for me was more than the comic book jokes. That was that was a little bit bit much. Right. So introducing this bad guy with an eye patch just for this. Yeah, yeah. I didn't mind him introducing the guy with the eye patch. Right. I think giving it to Fury was. Like I said, that's just too cute, given yeah. what ultimately happens to him. They get to the outskirts of Paris. Cap fights a man who is a master at Savate. Or is it is it Savate or Savat? 
don't it's know. French, so I presume it it's Savat. Yeah, it could be, yeah. Uh, clearly a relative of Batroc the Leaper. Well, we'll find that out later on. Yeah. He's his granddad, isn't he? Yeah. So that's a nice touch. Uh, a number of online reviews that I read of this comic state that they find a lot of the racial epithets used in the dialogue to be problematic. Which, so you would rather loop sanitise the dialogue in this story to satisfy your sensitive modern day sensibilities. Yeah. It's a, it's a different thing, isn't it? It's If you're writing a play about race in 1950s, you have to use the language well, of the time. Uh, Tom and Jerry yeah. is racist. Well, no, clearly. But it's not written to be racist. No. That was the mindset. So Warner Brothers has that thing that plays before every episode, which yeah. is great. Because this was written at a different time, yeah. where sensibilities were different. Because you're preserving art. Art, yeah. Because I will, I will argue with anybody that Tom and Jerry's art. Yeah. Because it clearly is. And uh, Jeff Johns, mm. not Jeff Johns, uh, Diamond Cook, yeah. in the New Frontier, like two or three times uses that word mm. to suit the that sto- the racial story, yeah. which is. It's it, it, it's it's strong because of how we are and how normal it it's was. It's supposed back to be there. strong though. And just three, two, three uses of that word is stronger than any time Brian Azzarello uses it. Yeah. Well. And so, Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, I do think it's stupid to argue that it's insensitive because yeah, you, we we wouldn't go out taking the piss out of French pe- German people's accents hmm. because of how we are now but yeah. to tell a story about that to tell a story about World War 2 to beat around the bush and hide from what actually happened yeah I mean, let's, and let's, let's just not have these guys be Nazis let's let's just not have well, any that's of this what happen they, that's what they did in let's, the film let's set they? it on the moon instead of in Poland you know come on Nazis on the moon don't be stupid yeah I, I thought that was a ridiculous criticism yeah I mean I'm, there's nothing stronger in this that there's ge- ge- we kick them in the Japans yeah, and Ratsy and stuff like that is what the all of that dialogue appears in the '60s Furies comics. Yeah, but they weren't written now. So yeah, or we have to be sensitive. No, I, I don't. It's a bollocks. It's stupid because yeah. I don't. I don't. I bet none of the people complaining were Germans. If this is what they. If this is what they spoke like in 1942. If you're setting your story in 1942, you should reflect how they spoke. Hmm. And from that, you can demonstrate the differences in the time between now and then. If you whitewash history, you are taking away everything that we have learned and the progress that we have made. Yeah, because you have to take your your bloody and ugly history yeah. to prove that you have to own your history. On. Yeah, there's no point being embarrassed by your history. You have to own it to say that yes, we wouldn't do it like that now. Yeah. Because otherwise... You're not learning from your mistakes. How have we progressed as a race yeah. if we're still hiding from our own past? Yeah, and whitewashing history like that, that was just the most ridiculous criticism I read. But is it, a, is it a criticism or is it a complaint for the sake of complaining? It's certainly not a valid criticism. Mm. There's other things to criticise this story for other than the fact that it's representing how people spoke at the time. Yeah, but it's easy to point fingers towards that. that was, well, that's like complaining about the title. Yeah. When, when you read the story, clearly the title is a reference to Cap's black, black and white worldview. Mm. And just, just when it was announced Captain America White, people said, oh, that title's problematic. In what way is the colour white problematic? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'd love to hear what the listeners think about that. Mm. Did, did, did anyone listening to this have a problem with the title of this story when they'd read it and got the context that it was, it was intended in? Even beforehand? Yeah. I mean, so could you not call something black? 
I mean, it depends on the context again, doesn't it? Yeah. You wouldn't call Black Panther black if you're going to do a Black Panther colour story. See, I don't... I don't know if it's just me or not, but I don't see the problem with that. Right. Okay. All right. I mean, again, the context of the story would play into it, wouldn't it? Or his black costume. Or he refers to himself as Black Panther. Like, yeah, back then it was because he was a black dude. Yeah. But now, in this present day, would he be called Black Panther because of something else? Well, that's going to be interesting to see whether they, what they address that in uh, Civil War, isn't it? What is or it if they even do, if they leave that till he's all filled. Is he going to be called the Panther of Wakanda? No, no, he's called Black Panther. Because <laughs> right. the, the movie's going to be called the Black Panther. Yeah. So it's going to be interesting to see how they, they relate that. I mean, it, they may do it in the terms of the comic story. I've just been a title that he's handed down from generation to generation and has been since time immemorial. Yeah. So they've just never changed it because it's, it's an honour to, to wear that title. Yeah. That may be the best way to go about doing it. But anyway, we don't know until we see the Black Panther movie, which I'm very much looking forward to. Mm. I do love the Black Panther. Right, you know, okay. Black Panther's a great character. I really do. I'd rather have the Black Panther than humans any day of the week. And twice on Sunday. Never really read Black Panther. I love Black Panther. All love Black Panther. Humans. But again, this is something else I'm not really that big a fan of Doctor Strange other than Steve Ditko and Roger Stern's run. Right. Yet I'm very much looking forward to the film. The Hubert Cumberdale one. Yeah. <laughs> Dirk Benedict X <laughs> Cumberdale. <laughs> Cumberbund. <laughs> and all the other names that we've created for him over the years. Um, the, the, this issue does do a good job of bringing home the brutal realities of war when Marilyn tells him they found his Nazi captives and threw them over the cliff. Yeah. Cap's horrified by this. Dum Dum Dugan thinks it's hysterical. Because it's, it's funny to think that that is... They killed those people, but it's kind of like... It's played as a joke because they're Nazis. Yeah, but at the same time, she takes him to task over his naive viewpoint Yeah, when she actually says to his face, look, America isn't occupied. These people have walked into my country, they have raped and killed French women and children. Chucking over the cliff is probably more than they deserved. Yeah. And I, I applauded her. I thought she was absolutely right. French France gets an undeserved bad rap for World War II mm. that ignores that many brave men and women fought in the French resistance. Yeah, there's the joke that they surrendered, but those are the a, lot of, a lot of people died before they surrendered. And the government surrendered. The people, the people did not want that decision. Yeah. That's, again, something that kind of gets overlooked. And there's a lovely bit where she actually points him in the face and says, look, we don't want to be rescued by America. Yeah. We want to sort this out ourselves. And then as the story progresses, she's like, well, all right, maybe we could do with a bit of help. Yeah. If we're all in this together. Which is, again, it's, she has a nice little story arc. Well, I, I think it's really good that this group is led by oh, a woman. Yeah. Because that, you know, argues against the... The Nazi viewpoint that, yeah. you know, women should be on popping out kits. And even to the modern day one, that yeah. the the only woman in it, really, despite being a love interest, is this strong character yeah. who wants the revolution. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I really liked her. I thought she was quite good. Um, the, the, it, it, it also addresses the quite prickly relationship France has with us and the US, yeah. to a certain extent. But, you know, the French resistance movement was vital mm. to many successful attacks by the British on the Nazis in occupied France. They would send their messages via BBC, the BBC World Service. They would send coded messages. America. And Churchill and co would listen to the BBC World Service knowing what the code words were. Right. And from there, they could uh, identify where German patrols would be right. and attack. That's a really cool part of BBC history. Yeah. 
And we wanted to get rid of them? Well, the the current government wants to get rid of them, yeah. Because that's, you know, that's what they want to do. Anyway. Continuity and nitpicks. Page 14 of this chapter is a panel-for-panel recreation of Cap's fight with Batroc on page 8 of Tales of Suspense, issue 85. And it's great. It is. And it actually says thanks, Thanks, Jack, Jack, at the bottom. So that's panel-for-panel straight out of that comic. Right. Exactly. Apart from that last panel. Yeah. Knock it off your yahoos. That's not in there. Uh, this is the first ever appearance of the Cirque de la Révolution. So this is clearly a continuity implant. Right. They, they don't exist in the 1960s comics. Uh, I also cannot find any modern era reference to a Marvel story where Cap specifically fought the Red Skull in France. Right. It's entirely possible some of the 40s Captain America comics had a story like that. But I do not have any of those. I and did, I've never read them. I did find this ending quite hilarious. What? It, it might be intentional, it might be unintentional, but Captain America's like, yep, yeah, we're in the right spot, and he lifts it up and he's in the centre <laughs> of a Nazi rally. <laughs> Alright, there is, there is a slight element of camp to this story. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I don't know you get away with that anymore. <laughs> Campy World War II story, but okay. Uh, chapter 5 is entitled A Pocket Full of Miracles. I would be surprised if you hadn't guessed, lovely listener, that this was a Frank Capra film. This one from 1961. The Red Skull announces his intentions to the people of Paris. He will not burn the city to the ground, as he is a kind and benevolent saviour. Fury doesn't buy a word of it. Cap wants to attack the Red Skull here and now, but Marilyn stops him. The mission is more important than one man. It is Fury who gets in between the disagreement. The Howlers and the Cirque are hurled up in a church. Inside, Marilyn tells Cap some home truths about the Nazi occupation as she repairs the straps on his shield. The conversation is heated and observed by Bucky and the youngest Howler, Reb. Cap is so displeased he opens the door so hard it whacks Bucky in the eye, giving him a shiner. Thanks to an inside source, they learn that the Gestapo plan to loot the Louvre. Is it the Louvre or the Louvre? The Louvre. Is it? and steal the Mona Lisa. They will then burn the place to the ground, eliminating a French cultural icon and grinding the French beneath the jack-booted heels. Fury doesn't buy it. The Skull isn't an errand boy. They should go to the Eiffel Tower and attack the Skull there. Still, Fury follows the mission. Upon arrival at the Louvre, Buki... Buki... <laughs> Buki! Should we just do it in a French Buki has nowhere yeah. to be seen. Oh la la, no, I think that'll be offensive. <laughs> Upon arrival at the Louvre, Bucky is nowhere to be seen. Reb says he's gone after the Red Skull. Cap, enraged, races to the Eiffel Tower. The Howlers continue with the mission. They witness the Nazis already unloading the best art for Hitler, but when the Howlers attack, they are ambushed. The Leaper has betrayed them. The Skull plans to blow up the Eiffel Tower and holds Bucky captive as Cap arrives. Cap faces a choice. Save a country or save a friend. I like the beginning of this one. Right. I like that the Red Skull's yeah. a politician. I love the Red Skull. It's like, so he thinks that uh, Hitler thinks this is a place of great beauty. Yeah, which he did. I, That's true. Yeah, but I think we're going to save you all yeah. just so we can prove that Germany's better. Uh, yes. Yeah, he thanks. He wants the masses to thank him for what he's not going to do. Yeah. And then he's going to do it anyway. Well, thank you for not blowing us up, Red <laughs> Skull. Uh, uh, it's a good intro to the Skull. It was a player on the other side version of Cap. Also part of the Super Soldier Project, it says here. Yeah. But stay tuned for... Continuity in it. Thank you very much. That's a great double-page spread. It is a brilliant double-page spread of um, all the Zeppelins in the background and the spotlights. Why are Zeppelins and spotlights cool? I don't know. Name me one thing, spotlights and Zeppelins are in the dark cool. 
I can't. The cool I, in the opening to Batman the Animated yeah. Series. The cool in the Rocketeer. You're right, no. <laughs> there is no one that they aren't cool. Oh, yeah. Even Nazi ones. Yeah. Which is, which is, you know. Quite... You, you get the sign off them and yeah, and just use them as a regular. <laughs> it's repainted. They're not Nazi zeppelins on the inside. <laughs> the zeppelins. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Uh, the skulls lied about when we are finished restoring Berlin to its rightful glory. Paris will be a mere shadow. So why destroy it? Is something Hitler actually said? as uh, related in the novel Inside the Third Right by Albert Speer. Right. So, technically, though, the Red Skull is quoting Hitler, mm. which is a nice touch. Uh, Captain America is traditionally a black-and-white character, hence the title. He's on the side of right, he never wavers in his duty, but life is rarely black-and-white. There's agenda, political posturing, negotiation, compromise. Cap wants to leap in and stop the Red Skull here and now. Is he wrong to think that? He's very stupid. Yeah, but he's not wrong. No, but I did feel like Captain America was too stupid in this scene. He'll be gunned down before he even leaves the suit. Yes, because he's in the middle of, as you say, a Nazi rally. Yeah. There's no way he would get to the skull. So Marilyn is exactly right in stopping him. But the skull is a clear and present danger. And is that hot-headedness not uh, a s- symbolic of how America was portrayed and seen? Oh, or her interpretation of same. Yeah. Yeah, so that, that's fine. Again, though, she does ask him, you know, when is the overall mission more important than one person? Mm. Which plays into Bucky's death, which I thought was a nice a nice little undercurrent. Uh, Loeb's dialogue in this issue is excellent. That's an intentionally hilarious panel. Which one? The one with Cap and the gypsy woman. Oh, yeah, where the candles are making what she's wearing transparent. Well, I've, I've, never, I've never done this before, and what makes you think I have? Because I'm French. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this is Superman the movie, isn't it? Yeah. This is Superman and Lois Lane's interview. So I, I assume I like that pink very much, all, your, all your other bodily functions are, are, are normal. <laughs> That's what this is. Yeah. This is dripping with innuendo. The Howler's dialogue is, is funny. It's genuinely funny. I like that. I, I like a lot of the Howler's um, dialogue. Uh, Loeb does a brilliant job, as you said, with Marilyn's character. She flat out asks Cap what would he think of the Nazis if they just stormed into Brooklyn, tore down the US flag and just took over. But Captain America has the single best line in the entire book at that point. Which is? I wouldn't wish parts of Brooklyn on my worst enemy. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Yeah. It's a good line. It kind of avoids the question. Yeah. And it's a remarkable look at the French people's will in this time of great strife. And that it's easy for Cap and Sergeant Rock to yeah. come help them out, but they're not the ones who are fighting every day. And Sergeant Fury, someone will email about that. What? You said Sergeant Rock. Oh, did I? Yeah. yeah. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Am I implying that perhaps they're the same yeah, character? They, they, they have a lot of similarities. Why did no one ever do that as a, as a Marvel DC crossover? Sergeant Rock and Easy Company and Sergeant Fury and the Howling Commandos. That would have been cool. I would love to see that. I'd yeah. still love to see that now. Yeah. I, I don't know who could do a good job of creating... Who's good at war comics now? Garth Ennis. Garth Ennis. Sergeant Rock and Sergeant Fury. Who draw it? Well, it'd have to be somebody from the Ennis stable, wouldn't it? Like Russ Heath or somebody who's worked oh, on Battlefield. Would not make someone from Marvel do it? I don't know. Well, Garth Ennis doesn't really work for either at the That's minute, true. does he? So he drops in every now and again, writes some miniseries, yeah. and then leaves... So, yeah, but I still want to see that. Mm. Sergeant Fury, Sergeant Rock. I think that would be really good. Uh, the conversation between Marilyn and Cap has a real impact on Cap. Fury doesn't care about the attack on the Louvre, referring to it as a collection of finger paintings. Yeah. Which is a bit, you know, crass. Well, I suppose, but there's kind of the, the 
a hint of the importance of art in this bit. Yeah, well, that's what Cap says, isn't it? Cap sees it for what it is, an attack on a symbol of national pride to further demoralise the French. But would he have said that if it wasn't for his past conversation? Who knows? Mm. That's her, she's having an impact on it. Yeah. Which I liked. I like that Cap is taking on board other people are fighting this fight as well. Yeah. Which, which is a really nice touch. The bit that didn't sit right with me in this issue, mm. I feel like I have to say this every issue, there's a bit in every one that didn't, <laughs> but it's when Cap slams the door open and hits Bucky, and then when he has the conversation to calm him down, he's like, put that mask on to hide your shiner. <laughs> like, Cap's learning where to hit them where the bruises don't show. <laughs> Sorry, Bucky, I did it because I love you. I'm just scared of you getting hurt out in war. Don't make me do it. <laughs> Yeah, okay, alright, fair enough. But then there's a great shot of him jumping off the building in front of the Eiffel Tower. Yeah, and uh, jumping off the Louvre in front of the Eiffel Tower, yeah. Some of the action stuff's really good. Yeah, I was quite disappointed that by the end of this story, the Eiffel Tower didn't turn out to be the Red Skull's rocket ship. (laughs) See, in a Stan Lee comic, it would totally (laughs) have done that, and Cap would have had to stop it being that. Whereas in this, it's a little bit more grounded. Yeah. A just, just a little bit, though. Yeah, just a little bit. Continuity and nitpicks. <laughs> Last one for this show. Uh, there aren't any. Right. There aren't any continuity. Not really. We can nitpick chronology. As we pointed out, it's just a completely different retelling of the Howler's first meeting with Cap. It completely conflicts with mainstream continuity. Uh, the reader can just pick which they prefer. Yeah. This one or the one from Sergeant for issue 13. There are also no stories in the Silver Age that I could find were the Skull plans to blow up the Eiffel Tower. So again, if that was in a 40s issue, it's possible, but I've never read any, so I wouldn't know. In real life, though, speaking of continuity and nitpicks, the people of France, at the behest of the curator of the Louvre, took and hid all the art from the Louvre to prevent Hitler and the Nazis from stealing it. Right. According to Speer's book, Hitler never actually visited the Louvre when he visited Paris in 1940. Right. But uh, he did say about Paris being a beautiful city. Yes. Uh, so why do you want to march into it and destroy it then? To preserve it for all of its yeah. German glory. Yeah, anyway. Uh, the Leaper is established here as being Olivier and is Georges Batroc's grandfather. I am butchering the French words. <laughs> I do apologise to any French people who have to be listening. Just recall back to your GCSE. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I couldn't do it properly. Right? This is bad rock. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mr. Foster would just I, not be. I, I do feel like I might be uh, insulting a few people <laughs> there as well. Michael apologises also, don't I? I apologise wholeheartedly <laughs> while I eat my garlic bread. Oops, oops, sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, d- d- anyway, Captain America the Winter Soldier, I was saying, Bad Rock's in that. He is? And he's really good in that. Uh, Cap says the skull is a product of the super soldier experiment which I alluded to earlier when I said continuity in Apex. This doesn't really jibe with Tales of Spence issue 66 right. which just states that the skull's a man in a mask. Okay. Well, this, have you ever read the Red Skull's origin? Oh, I've only read the Ed Brubeck stuff. My so. god it's dopey. The 60s original. Basically he's a bus boy right. who loves Hitler Okay. who manages to meet Hitler when he stays in his hotel Right. who proves his worth to Hitler by shooting somebody, and Hitler makes him his right-hand man by giving him a Red Skull mask. Is that it? That's pretty much <laughs> it. Now, I think it's been added depth okay. in later years, <laughs> and maybe, I, I mean, it may be in um, J.M.D. Matthias' run, where it's established the Red Skull face is his face, yeah, and not a mask, which it was in the film. But in the 60s original, it's not one of Stan and Jack's strongest origins. Right, Let's okay. put it that way. Yeah, anyway. Um, part six is It's a Wonderful Life. 
unless you've led a really sheltered life, you'll be aware that It's a Wonderful Life is a Frank Capra film. Probably his most famous. It's a Christmas film? It's it's a very bleak Christmas film. Does this one end with Captain America contemplating suicide? Because he doesn't have Bucky to show Christmas with. That would be brilliant. <laughs> and then the ghost of Bucky showing up on account now, can he? Because yeah. Bucky was never dead. Which has created a conflict in Marvel history because there's, there's a book of the dead where the zombie dead arise and Bucky was one of them. Really? Yeah. B- Bucky of the Dead yeah but it was a, it was, I think it's a 1980s or 1990s story right okay and, uh, and I think Norman Osborn's one of them as well oh, okay oops <laughs> anyway part 6 Cap arrives at the Eiffel Tower and takes on the Red Skull at the Louvre Baron von Strucker turns on Olivier saying that his family will not be spurred as was the deal but instead transferred to Auschwitz along with Le Cirque Olivier leaps at Strucker and is shot for his troubles. As he dies, he asks Marilyn to take care of his family. Fury uses this opportunity to attack. Back at the Eiffel Tower, Cap punches the skull, and he falls, taking his detonator with him. The dynamite explodes, though, and Cap launches at Bucket and pushes them both off just in time. They land safely on the big top tent. Cap and Marilyn share a moment as they wrap up the story. She says he needs to go off and save the world. Leave Paris to her. Fury is finally impressed. He tells Cap he carries the weight of the country on his back, and that's an impossible task, but he wears it well. Cap and Bucky drive off into the sunset. In the present day, Cap looks at the monuments to himself and Bucky in Arlington Cemetery. He destroys the Cap statue, leaving the Bucky one standing. He tells Fury the government can bill him. Which was not a very good ending, was it? It wasn't. I didn't really buy Cap doing that. No. That's destruction of private property. That the taxpayers. Yeah, surely Captain America would be a bit more respectful. Maybe he'd say something like, can we take that one down? Or Peter Parker, Spider-Man, would totally have done that. Yeah. But Spider-Man's I feel like Captain America would have been uncomfortably humble. Yeah, that may have been a better reaction, Mm. actually. Because he's not one for medals and and awards and stuff, is he? So to see that there's this statue of him, he'd been like, oh. To be humbled that he was remembered, but uncomfortable that. But now, now yeah, if he says, now now I'm alive, you can can take this down. We don't need to leave it up. That would have been better than him destroying it. That felt too. too. What's the word I'm looking for? Not. too. not angsty. No, not angsty. Too. too frivolous for Captain America. Right, yeah. I to just drive away and put it on my bill. Yeah, it didn't feel like that to me. But yeah. Yeah, okay. A good opening monologue. We go about our lives promising, as we did in the First World War, that this war will be the last. History tells us otherwise. Mm. I like that. I thought that was a good opening. Uh, I did. Is Captain America driving up the side of the Eiffel Tower? Yes. Is he like Thingy and Doctor Who? Has he got that bike that the Doctor has that can drive up the side of a building? It's it's great that he's driving up the (laughs) Alpha. It's taken us four issues to get to a fun fight scene. Oh, I don't know. Some of the fights have been okay. The first one with the Howlers was funny. This is the most comic booky Captain America bit. Well, it's Cat versus the Red Skull. Yeah. You don't get any more comic boot than that. Uh, The Nazis betray Olivier, who didn't see that coming. Yeah, they were Decepticons all along. (laughs) Who could have seen that? I like that he's got the purple outfit. Yeah, a, a backdrop lily purple. Yeah. yeah, I like that as well. I thought that was really cute. That being said, his death's quite touching. Yeah. As well, I, th- I think that was watch over my grandson, little George. And then Fury. And I like that the Howlers have a moment of silence as well. Mm. That basically he did that for his family. And that's, that's, that's a nice touch. Yeah. That, you know, they can understand why he did it. Even if they don't agree with why he the did intentions it. were pure. Yeah, I like that. I thought that was quite good. Uh, this was the t- 
cap catches Bucky as he falls. What does Bucky say? Yeah, you've got me. Who's got you? <laughs> oh, oh, dear God. Yeah. Lobe wears his love of Superman on his sleeve, doesn't he? So that splash page, maybe not the whole splash page, but at least the plate, the zeppelin going down, and the yeah. pencils of the plane. Yeah, the pencils of great. Bucky's fate yeah. in the future was uh, was great. You're not going to die, not on my watch. Yeah. And then they put that bit in the background of, of Bucky doing just that, which which uh, yeah, that was that was a nice touch. Where did the big top tent that they land on come from? No idea. They set it up what? when. <laughs> Why is it though? Is it just like the circle of the revolution and just have a tent? Yeah. Alright. I guess it's better than smashing through the pyramid of the Louvre. Yeah. Well, the, cir- the circus can't have set this up because they're is over it? the Louvre. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Um, I like it's a bit. I, I felt it was a bit anticlimactic that Captain America's like, we have to get rid of all the bottom and Sergeant Fury. <laughs> It's like, well, Captain America, it would seem that in your anger, you can... No, it seems that when you punched out Red Skull, you saved the day without yeah, knowing Yeah, he had the detonator in his hand. Don't worry about it. See, that felt kind of like... That felt like, like, oh, crap, we've padded this story out too much that we can't actually wrap it up properly. Yeah. And the Red Skull's believed to be dead. Yeah. Of course, he isn't, because he's the Red Skull. And uh, I do like that um, Cap and Marilyn share a kiss, and, you know... Maybe a bit more. It, a gentleman never kisses and tells. No, he doesn't. But he seems a lot happier on the next page. He does. Is he? all I am willing He's to slowing. say. Yeah. So you know, maybe Marilyn showed him. I do like the dialogue of this bit though. Yeah. It's like yes. What were you asked and I answered? <laughs> so did you kiss her? Who? Who? Who else? You're in the middle of Paris, the most romantic city in the world, not counting the Ratsies and a French doll who's crazy about you. And yes. Wait, what? You asked, I answered. And? Gentleman doesn't talk about these things. I like that. Yeah. Oh, come on! That was good. Yeah, that was a nice touch. I like the Nick Fury cap scene. Yeah. Where Nick Fury makes it, makes it quite obvious he's figured out that he's Steve Rogers. I'm not as dumb as some folks think I am. I've been onto you and the kids since we shipped out. Don't get your panties in a bunch, I won't tell anyone. And if you ever do, I'll call you a goddamn liar. Love that. Yeah. Love Nick Fury. I love Nick Fury generally. Especially World War II, Nick Fury. Yes. But uh, he's especially good in that bit. Uh, the wrap-up is both quick and sweet. It seems very much like Loeb and Sale just weren't terribly interested in the action this series. Mm. Preferring to concentrate on the character moments. You know, it wraps up with capture in that case and, you know, maybe something more. Fury works it out. The world is, if not saved, then the world lives to fight another day. Yeah. As it goes on, and then the final bit is him destroying the statue. Which, again, we've discussed, I felt was a little bit out of character for him. But uh, it was, you know, alright. Lobe sale 2015, as opposed to the cover, which said 2008. Yeah. So, that's, that's good. Uh, not as good as Daredevil Yellow, or Spider-Man Blue. This is slightly better than Hulk Grey, if only because it does at least feel like a story. The problem with it is twofold. One... The Bucky storyline has been revisited so many times at this stage, it feels old and unnecessary. Ed Brubaker did such a good job of updating the concept so it works in more modern times, and then the film did another good job of updating it, albeit in a completely different way, that this feels even more like a throwback. Bucky is back here to being the slightly tiresome sidekick character that Brubaker did such a good job of reinventing, and as such, this feels old-fashioned in a bad way. 
Bucky here just isn't as interesting as he is in the film or in the Winter Soldier comic books. The second problem is also a product of the Winter Soldier. We know Bucky's alive. Mm. Bringing that knowledge into the story may have made it dramatically richer if they established that Bucky's survival... I, I don't know, to change Cap's look back on, on his World War II adventure and all those years that he thought he was dead. But ultimately, without addressing that, Bucky's survival undercuts the drama. Yeah, He's not dead. Therefore, Cap's hand-wringing just doesn't matter, does it? I mean, it's not bad by any means, but it, by golly, it's a, it's a quick read. Yeah, well, my problems with it is that it gets dull. Mm. Cap's monologue gets dull and repetitive and then you don't even have the payoff of Bucky dying. No, they don't even end with Bucky dying. No. And the... Bucky being the muse of this story is interesting but not as powerful as it is in the other three or if it would have been Peggy Carter. Yeah. And... No, it's just so completely different to the other ones. I, I think that I think Ed minute, Brubaker's ruined this story. Well from, well, from the minute you pick it off the shelf, mm. the 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 trade's different, mm. the size is different, the paper, everything about it is so different from the other three. Yeah, and that doesn't help it. No, I mean, like I say, it's it's good, it's enjoyable. If you enjoyed the other three, you'll enjoy this one. I feel like it was a, one trip to the well too many. Well, a dull four pages almost redeemed by a fun fight in the last two issues. Right, so dull four four issues. Dull, yeah, yeah, dull four issues, yeah. Right. Okay. All right. I enjoyed it a bit more than you did, then. Huh? It does feel not of a part of the other three. I'll it's give you that. It does feel separate. worth an eight-year wait. No, I, I, I'm left wondering why this I took was, eight years. I was expecting it to be nothing less than perfect. Maybe that's it. Maybe the wait has hurt this. I suppose. Maybe if you're just coming to all these now. I don't think it would have been that good of a read back in 2008. I, I don't think... It has been a, a spiral of, what's it called, ever-decreasing circles or diminishing returns or whatever they call it. Right. Since Spider-Man Blue and Daredevil Yellow. They were clearly the best two. Yeah. The Hulk Grey, I think we I think we talked about that, felt a little bit not as good as the other two. Mm. I felt this one was a little bit better than that. Right. Because I wasn't that big a fan of Tim Sale's Hulk, if you remember. Right. But this does feel apart from those. It doesn't feel a part of the series. Mm. Um, and it might have been better if it was called Captain America, Bucky, or Bucky Year One, or something like that. But that wouldn't it, fit in with the... I suppose, but I think going into it with... Thinking that it's a part of the Colours Trilogy series, mm. that hurts it just as much Yeah, as knowing about Bucky or anything. Yeah, you're probably right, and I think I think it just came out too late. I think the Winter yeah. Soldiers comics did a good job it's of the Bucky story in the film. It just felt a little redundant. It's yeah. a comic out of time. Yeah, essentially. Whereas the Gwen Stacy one at the time that he did it, Gwen Stacy hadn't been constantly mined the worst that she has now. It, it, Maybe that's the wrong phrase for it, given what Norman Osborn did. But you know what maybe I mean. Maybe Jeff Loeb intended that as some kind of meta-textual thing. Maybe. Captain America's a man at a time. I'll make him wait for this so it won't go long when it comes out. Possibly, I doubt it. Yeah, but you know, tentative recommendation. Mm. If you like the other ones, you'll probably like this, even but. though I don't think it is as good as, as some of the other ones. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Next time on an all-new episode of Hey Kids Comics, not gonna click. 
Have we not decided now? No, this is the last one that we're recording by Michael's own free spray. Until summer? Yeah, so we won't have uh, an episode out now till summer. I mean, I'll space all these three out. Right. So that, you know, maybe one a month or something. But, uh, yeah, so we, we're not going to collect. Got some couple of things scribbled in, in the book. Mm. Which uh, I don't actually know where the book is, to be honest with you. It's normally at the side of my laptop here. Yeah. All right, well, it'll show up. I must have been making notes in it somewhere. Uh, so we don't know what it is, uh, but I'm sure we'll we'll come up with something for doing some over summer. Mm-hmm. But your your summer is what four months long? Something like May, that. May, June, July, August. So we'll we'll come up with some shows. Fifth of May for over <laughs> the summer holiday. Maybe you know, Michael. Maybe you've got some ideas. I know we want to do some more Star Trek Apollo, don't we? Uh, yeah, we've got Wonder Woman coming up. Yeah, we've Wonder Woman year one. That may be interesting. Maybe some of the Superman, uh, Wonder Woman Earth one. Yeah, yeah. That may be interesting. Yeah, if we do Superman Earth one volume one. Wonder Woman Earth 1 volume. All the Earth 1s. Maybe Batman Earth 1. I, I don't care about Teen Titans. That's Jeff Lemire. Yeah, I don't care. I might pick that up, to be honest. Oh, okay. Well, if you care when you read it, we'll do it. I like Jeff Lemire, though. You do. So I don't dislike Jeff Lemire. All right. Anyway. Okay, well, well, I hope you enjoyed these these three little specials that have come out randomly over the past couple of months. Yeah. But we are recorded in the space of a week. <laughs> and uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Hey Kids Comics is a The Devil Will Find Work for Idle Hands to Do production and a Two True Freaks presentation. If you wish to buy stuff from Amazon, why not do it through the twotruefreaks.com link, which leaves a couple of pennies in our tip jar. The music used in Hey Kids Comics is used to underscore the synopsis, so they're not quite as boring as you just listening to me talk. Michael and Andrew can be reached through Facebook, Twitter, whatever. Why not join us so we can talk about funny books together? Correspondence to the show generally can be sent to heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. Who will campaign door to door for America? Carry the flag shore to shore for America. From Hoboken to Spokane, the stars stand up and we the flag. We can't ignore there's a threat. On the goose, let me lose from Berlin.